Did you say what kind of animal was that attacked her? So yeah, there's any type of animal attack. Statistically, there's been more animal attacks, mysterious deaths, people gone missing. In other news, local authorities remain perplexed by the animal attacks. What attacked her in the woods? An animal. What else could it have been? Welcome to It Was an Animal Attack, home of the supernatural drama series. I'm Sandile. And I'm Fadzai. We are here today to speak about the ephemeral, the eternal, the iconic Esther, mother to the original vampires, sometimes referred to as the original witch, but I have contentions. We will get into it later. Just as a qualifier, because we're speaking about a character who exists in the Vampire Diaries, but also in the originals, when this family of the originals gets their spin-off show, which is a pretty great show. You should watch it if you haven't seen it. We may touch on events that happen in that show, but largely in the discussion of the character of Esther, we're going to be talking about stuff that happens in the Vampire Diaries. Just so you know, and do with that information what you will. Before we jump in to that discussion, we've got some notes and corrections, some due diligence, because unlike John Gilbert, we don't have a witch to fix our failures before they become them. So <laughs> jumping into some corrections from the Anna episode, our last episode, in which I said Damon Salvatore, and by extension, Ian Somerhalder as his actor, was 5'11". He is, in fact, 5'9". He's 5'9"? Yes, he is. And this is the reason I made that mistake. I knew for certain in my head that Stefan Salvatore, as well as Paul Wesley by extension, was 5'10". And I knew that they were an inch apart. But because Damon is the older sibling, I had assumed that Damon was the taller one. This is not the case. So, there's a revelation for you. A happy correction on my part, but <laughs> I digress. <laughs> That's interesting, because even, even in all, like, the promotional material and, like, even on screen, like, they always look pretty similar in height. If anything, Ian looks taller to me whenever they're next to each other. That happens sometimes in a cast where, like... You see it in even like an Abbott Elementary where Gregory Eddy seems so tall in comparison because everyone else on that show is short. I think the fact that like on the Vampire Diaries cast, Bonnie, Elena, Caroline's a little bit taller than them, but all of them compared to the men are so short that like all the men kind of blend ah. together. Unless you're a Rick or a Jeremy who yes. towers over the rest of the cast. Okay. That makes me wonder how short Joseph Morgan is because he's even shorter than Ian Summerholder. But speaking of Caroline, she's actually taller than Tyler uh, Lockwood, who is her love interest for quite a while. Oh. Candace Akala uh, is tall. Well, actually, she goes by Candace. She's married now. What is her, her new surname? No, she got... So they split up too, but she kept the name. She's Candace King now. Oh, okay. Well, Candace, Candace King, wish her all the best, Yes. Um, is, I think, <laughs> I think, about a whole inch taller than... Uh, Michael Trevino, who plays Tyler Lockwood. So he's her short king. Love to see it. I don't know if we've spoken about it before, but whenever I see a couple that's like a cis dude and a cis woman, if the man is shorter, it just fills me with a little bit of glee. I don't know what it is. I'm just like, go off short king, go off tall queen, live your best lives. Interestingly, in the book, since you bring up Damon's height, well, Ian's height and by extension Damon's height, in the Vampire Diaries books, Damon is actually noted to be significantly shorter than Stefan Salvatore, even though he's the older brother. He is like described as being the shorter, like more stockier built 
brother. Oh. Um, whereas Stefan is leaner and longer. Which, I mean, it, it does happen with siblings. Often you get, like, a, a little brother who's, like, taller than yeah. the older brother by the time they both finish growing. Yeah, yeah, But uh, it's interesting to me that Ian, Ian is shot in a way that makes it look like he's very tall. Whereas in the books, it's like Damon is short in the books and it's pointed out that he's short. Maybe he pulled a Tom Cruise. He was like, please shoot me at up angles only. I need to appear <laughs> like the towering man I wish I was. We're not here to slander Ian Somerhalder. He's probably a lovely man. My second correction is less of a correction and more of an apology to you Fadzai. Mm-hmm. I forget what episode it was but at a time you referred to Alaric's darkness slash vampire hating era as evil Alaric. Yes. And I'd like to make this apology for two reasons. The first being that I checked in with my sisters. I'm sure I've mentioned before that. In my rewatch of The Vampire Diaries, that was with the express purpose of uh, showing the show to my sisters. I confirmed that we also had a stupid name for him. That being (laughs) Killaric. A play on Killer Rick. Killaric. A little bit smarter than Evilaric in my opinion, but nonetheless... The second reason is that they do actually say Evilaric in the show. They do? I actually thought that I had just gotten that from, like, the fandom, like, calling him that, like, on the wiki and on Tumblr and stuff. I didn't know that that was said in the show. They say it one time. It is said by Damon Salvatore, who coins the term, so... I, I am validated. It is between you and your god that you are excited about that term, <laughs> and it has nothing to do with me. I also have some due diligence in the scene where we discussed Anna and Damon first having their uh, their first confrontation in the 21st century where Anna overpowers him, I mistakenly said that that was the first time that the show establishes that if a vampire is significantly older than another vampire, they will be stronger. That was not true. Uh, that's actually already established in the episode where we meet Lexi, who mm. is said to be over three centuries old mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. threatens Damon and he's scared of her. Uh, And if he hadn't sneak attacked her, she probably would still be alive. So, yes, my apologies for that. Regardless, Anna is the first older vampire we talk about on the podcast. So I think your point from last week still applies. With that covered, I think we can jump into what we're here to do today, which is to talk about Mama Original, Esther herself. Mother to the originals, the first vampires to ever exist in the Vampire Diaries universe. If you don't know the originals by some stretch of luck and you haven't seen the edits online, she is an interesting point in the show because she's kind of the reason the show exists. If you like pull the thread long enough back, a decision made in what, 1000 AD? Slightly before that. How do you mean? Nine, 900 and something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't know the exact maths on... on I wasn't checking dates. I'm sorry. I research, <laughs> My days of research, of like exhaustive research, are so far behind me. I know what century they were in. It's fine. <laughs> I read it in a Gilbert journal somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> I did a history report for my teacher, Alaric Saltzman, and... I, <laughs> But yes, in that time, a thousand odd years ago, a decision made by her and her footnote husband, Michael, who we will also be discussing today. Footnote. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of spins out the existence of vampires. But if we're going to start on Esther, we have to start from the beginning. And with Esther in the Vampire Diaries, at least, it all starts with a necklace. It's season three. 
Klaus is the present threat. At this point, we've only met Klaus and Elijah. Elijah has been re-daggered with the dagger dipped in white oak ashes and put to sleep in the coffins where Klaus keeps the rest of his family. I believe at this point, Klaus is trying to make his hybrids because that's one of Klaus's like three character traits in life is that he's always trying to make more hybrids. He's always trying to build an army for these imaginary enemies that he has. Him and Stefan, who is now working for him because he's traded his life over for the cure to Damon's werewolf bite. So Stefan's kind of jobbing for Klaus right now. They are in Chicago, the city of their former bromance. Stefan isn't aware of this as yet, but this is where they experience the Roaring Twenties. Klaus has sought Gloria, who is a witch that was also there in the Twenties and has been using like magic and herbs to slow her aging. She looks like maybe 50 max at this point. For reasons that aren't important right now because it's not really relevant to Esther, Gloria needs a talisman that was important to who they've been referring to as the original witch. The original witch being the one that put the hybrid curse on Klaus, forcing Klaus's werewolf side to be suppressed and making it so that he can't make more hybrids like himself. In order to find this talisman, they need to speak to Rebecca, who's currently daggered and kept in a coffin. So, I believe at this point, Klaus... Does Klaus undagger Rebecca, or does Stefan undagger? Klaus does it. There's no way Stefan was going to do it without Klaus to say so. Sometimes I I forget. I know now when the point it is, but sometimes I forget whether Stefan is like being compelled by Klaus or not. But it happens at a very specific point, and it is after this. So, Klaus undaggers Rebecca. Rebecca wakes up. They spat because, of course, she's been daggered for an indeterminate amount of time. And she realizes that her necklace, which is the talisman that they're looking for, is not with her. It's not on her person. It's not in the coffin. I believe she throws the coffin at the end of the episode, but they know the necklace is missing. Us knowing what the necklace looks like from flashbacks to Chicago, we know that that is the iconic necklace that Stefan gives to Elena in the first season that is uh, covered in vervain or contains vervain or however it is that prevents vampires from compelling her. At the same time, Damon is talking to Catherine. Catherine, who's snuck to Chicago at this point, always going back to Chicago, even though she knows Klaus is after her. (laughs) She is speaking to Damon for reasons. She flashes back to Chicago when she was there in the 20s, and she sees Stefan pick up the necklace. This man shows up and says, Chicago PD, in the wildest accent you ever heard, (laughs) Um, for obvious reasons. This is Sebastian Roche, whom I love. He plays Balthazar in Supernatural, uh, he's been in a couple of other things. I think he's been in some like DCCW show that I probably didn't watch because I fell off after. But he is a French-American actor, right? So he is French originally. But I think when he speaks in just like normal life, he has like a broadly English accent. So like he's got a lot going on. I think he's American currently, though, in that way that, like, when actors go to America for work and then they become American citizens. Like Emily Blunt. Or Charlize Theron. Oh, like Charlize. Mama Charlize. Our dearest <laughs> friend. Our icon. Fadzai's once workmate. So... <laughs> so... No, that's not canon. No, Ellen, that's not the truth. 
Stefan turns around and sees this for what he knows a police officer who is asking after Klaus and Rebecca. I believe he shows Stefan a picture. Stefan doesn't give anything up because he's ride or die. Even though at this point he's been compelled to forget Klaus and Rebecca and that they spent any time together. I guess Stefan is just a cab like that, which is kind of cool. We who've watched the show however many times know that this is in fact Michael. This is Papa original. Do we know that Klaus and Rebecca are running from someone at this point? We do know that they're running from someone. At least by the, by the time we get to the end of the episode, which is where this scene is, we know that they're running. Um, right before she gets daggered because she chooses Stefan, Rebecca says, I'm tired of running, Nick. All we ever do is run. I want to stay with Stefan. So it's, it's clear that they're clearly, you know, avoiding something. Mm. So anyone with like above average level reasoning can deduce that this is the guy that they're running from but no such information about him as yet a couple episodes later we're in the reckoning which is the fifth episode of the third season i think we've discussed this in the vicky episode and the anna episode because season three really is the best vampire diaries ever was so all the good stuff is in there yes klaus as usual is trying to force other people to solve his problems he wants them to figure out how to make his hybrids. So he has fed his blood to and killed Tyler and is forcing Bonnie and crew to figure out how to make it stick. They're looking for Jeremy because he's a medium and can speak to ghosts. Jeremy has been snatched by Damon and Catherine because they are trying to find who this person is that Klaus and Rebecca are running from. Jeremy speaks to Anna out on the other side and she reveals that they are looking for Michael who is, quote, a vampire who hunts other vampires. And he is supposedly entombed somewhere. Back at the school where Klaus is terrorizing everybody, that's where Bonnie and Matt do the drowning trick, where essentially Matt drowns himself and Bonnie brings him back using CPR because the condition to becoming a medium is that you have to have died. That is when Vicky sends Matt with the message that... His hybrid transformations are not working because Elena as the doppelganger is still alive. So he would have to kill Elena for the transformations to stick. When Klaus hears this, he knows that that message is actually a trick. And he figures out that it's Elena's blood that should be used to create the hybrids. He feeds the blood to Tyler. Tyler freaks out for a little bit. But then in a dramatic scene, he looks up at the camera. And his eyes are burning yellow, but they've got like the bulging veins underneath them like a vampire. And it's like, oh my god, a hybrid. Yeah, iconic. <laughs> Brilliant. Metatextually at this point, we know that this is Esther's machinations, right? We've discussed the fact that like Vicky was at the beck and call of Esther at the time. Esther, the original mastermind is what they should call her rather than original witch, because that truly <laughs> is a more fitting description. Um, it's also interesting that she goes for Vicky rather than Anna to get to this like central nucleus of the characters. I, I like to think it's because she knew she couldn't manipulate Anna because real recognizes real. <laughs> oh, because because Anna knows manipulation. <laughs> Anna invented manipulation. They're one and the same. But I also think because in a prior episode, right, Anna says to Jeremy that she sensed this darkness. So she was already aware of Esther trying to like make moves. So I don't think she would have been able to fool Anna. I think possibly also because Vicky had more connections to the core cast than Anna did. Like Anna was only really important to Jeremy. Um, she knew Stefan and Damon personally from the from the 1860s, but like her strongest relationship was with Jeremy. Whereas Vicky really mattered to Matt. She had mattered to Tyler at a certain point. Uh, 
Damon sort of felt guilty for killing her for like five episodes before he before he never brought it up again. But at this point, we're getting like hints of this quote original witch kind of working from the background. We're getting magic moves. We're getting items that have been left behind. We're getting kind of like a, a thread, a through line of this original witch that supposedly existed a thousand years ago. Following episode is Smells Like Teen Spirit. This is the episode in which Catherine, who now knows where Michael is, thanks to Anna's ghost knowledge, uh, she and Jeremy head off to the crypt where he's been entombed. They find him, he's desiccated, he's chained up, he looks all grayed out. I believe, does she use Jeremy's blood? <laughs> no, she uses human blood to wake him up. No, first she she like, she murders some innocent bystander, you know, as, as you do when you're a vampire in this universe. She tries to offer the body to him, but he doesn't really respond. And later on, I think it's Damon who calls her and asks how it's going. And she says that, oh no, I've, I found the vampire, but he's like not waking up. I've tried everything. Mourners, grave diggers, bats, rats, mice, he won't eat anything. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, she sees some poor innocent soul visiting the grave of a loved one in the distance. And she's like, okay, I'll give it one last shot. <sighs> so when we, when we cut back to her, she's murdered this person and she's dripping their blood like directly onto Michael's lips. And so he wakes up just a little bit. Um, and then he he snarls at her to get it away like he doesn't want the blood or the body so that's that's how she first wakes him up with that with that like the third person she killed that day (laughs) third time's the charm as they say she pulls the chains off him and he's still looking quite rough and then she's like you know some blood would grease those joints right up and then he says i don't feed off the living and then she's like well what do you eat (laughs) and then he grabs her in what is a very satisfying scene for me i was like Yes, Catherine, now you are the prey. For once. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, this is, you can see it even while he's desiccated and grayed out, but this is the same man we see in the flashback, the cop who speaks to Stefan. Uh, This is Michael, Michael Original. Next episode being Ghost World. This is the episode where um, all the ghosts start pushing through from the other side, and Bonnie does the spell to reveal them, and they all become apparent. This is when... Mason Lockwood, Anna, Vicky, Lexi, and the tomb vampires are the most notable people to come back. Oh yes, and Sheila, yes. Uh, Bonnie's Grams. Grams comes to Bonnie to assist her in closing the door that she accidentally opened when she brought Jeremy back to life. And she tells her that the original witch is the one who's unleashed everyone that has unfinished business. And that her talisman needs to be destroyed in order to close this door. Once they get the talisman, the same necklace, Elena's necklace, um, they recite a spell, Bonnie and Grams, and they destroy the necklace in fire. And this succeeds in ridding Mystic Falls of all these ghosts who are causing havoc in the time that they're there. Later onwards, though, towards the end of the episodes, while Bonnie's standing there after a dramatic uh, conclusion to her fight with Jeremy, she sees in the fire that the necklace reappears completely restored undamaged again all these little almost drip feeding us with this character who seems to wield such power that she reaches from beyond the grave the episode after that we're just going to speed run some of these earlier ones because esther doesn't ever actually show up but her effects are kind of felt from far away but next episode being ordinary people mason lockwood who is now gone has revealed to damon this cave in mystic falls that has all these etchings and drawings on the wall. And supposedly, this cave contains a weapon 
against the originals. Since they already know Michael's in that crypt and they're busy waking him up, they're trying to reconcile the knowledge that there's a weapon in this cave with the fact that they've been running from Michael. The fact that this is the first point where Michael is linked to the original specifically, because until this point, he's just been described as a vampire who hunts vampires, just general. Even though it's clear that the siblings, the Michelson siblings, have been running from him for ages. The fact that it's their father kind of steps the game up in terms of this impending threat. So Elena decides, okay, we've got all these etchings. We can't really make sense of them. Let's just go to someone who was there when they were written. So she goes to talk to Rebecca, who at present is in her, I'm a thousand years old, but I want to go to high school phase. Um, <laughs> It's, it's truly it's not the best look for rebecca i mean she she missed out on 90 years of you know humanity i i can understand wanting to go to school and just see you know what the world is like i hear that she says that to nick i think i don't it might be nick it might be someone else but she says i never got to go to a high school dance and in my mind i'm like when you were a child there was no such thing <laughs> At the point where high school dances were invented, you were already 900. Why is this something you yearn for? Curiosity. I understand the idea of, like, stolen youth, right? But it's like, at a certain point, there has to be a break-even. There has to be a, my inner child is also now, like, 500 years old. There's no sane way to comfort her. I think it's it's also at that point, um, after successfully siring Tyler... I think Klaus is scared off when Damon comes back and name drops Michael because he's heard he's heard Michael's name from Anna. I don't think he knows at that point what exactly Michael is, mm. but he name drops Michael and Klaus dips, leaving Stefan there with no emotions but with uh, compelled orders to watch over Elena. And he leaves Rebecca behind. Klaus leaves town and dishes Rebecca. And I think Rebecca at that point she's 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 still got her little crush on Stefan because for her it was just like you know the other day that she and Stefan were in love for a while um so maybe it's that you know she's she's like flailing a bit and trying to hold on to something maybe she's trying to see what is it about being a high school girl in the 21st century that attracted Stefan to Elena like maybe I can figure out a way to get this man back since my brother has ditched me and I've got no one else you're absolutely right because the vehemence with which she maintains this rivalry with Elena a rivalry that frankly Elena isn't really interested in it, <laughs> it, I think that's that's why I'm so upset by it too is that there's this extra element of you're playing all these games at this high school level when these main characters who are <laughs> high school aged are trying to deal with such big game shit you know we he just reminded me of yeah. that scene in High School Musical 2 when um, Gabriella and Sharpay have like their argument. Right. And Sharpay says to Gabriella, you just can't handle the fact that I won. And then Gabriella's like, won? What prize? Troy? Well, <coughs> congratulations, Sharpay. You're very good at a game that I don't want to play anymore. <laughs> and I'm thinking, maybe that's what Elena was thinking. Elena was thinking, bruh, like my aunt died last month. My boyfriend has no emotions. I'm falling for his brother. My my brother cheated on my best friend. <laughs> like, I don't have time for you. My problems supersede whatever you think is happening at this level. I'm so sorry. I understand <laughs> this is important to you, but I've got 16 other problems that need my attention. <laughs> but it does make sense that she would be like, okay, I've got to be in this love triangle that neither of the other points of 
the triangle. <laughs> I've got to make this work somehow. <sighs> okay. Anyway, so uh... Elena goes to talk to Rebecca and shows her pictures of these cave drawings. And she asks why she and Klaus have spent a thousand years running from their father. Rebecca is being reticent about information. Elena threatens to wake Michael, saying that they know where his tomb is, so they know where to go if they need to wake him up. Rebecca responds quite emotionally and says if they wake him, they're all doomed. We then cut to a scene that is a flashback of Rebecca's. We see Elijah, elder brother to Klaus and Rebecca, and Klaus practicing their sword fighting. And we immediately see that we're no longer in present day. We are in medieval times. What's 1000 AD? Is that medieval? I guess that's medieval. I feel like Middle Ages vibes. Yeah. We're far back, we'll say. The hair is different, the fits are different, um, there's no sign of modern technology in sight. Two boys are fighting with actual swords. So, <laughs> Klaus wins the sword fight with uh, some unorthodox combat. Everyone's having a laugh, and then their father, Michael, arrives. And immediately the air is sucked out of the valley. They're outdoors. I don't know how that expression works. The, the village clearing. <laughs> Michael arrives with... Uh, a woman who is clearly their mother. Do we get her name at this point? Like, I can't remember when's the first point someone says Esther. I don't think so, because um, in a scene before Elena goes to ask Rebecca for these answers, um, what leads her to Rebecca is that Alaric and Damon, uh, Alaric being the, the history teacher, they have translated the uh, runic script that is etched on the walls, and they've realized that the names of people that they are familiar with are there and they see Elijah's name, Rebecca's name, Klaus's name, and Michael's name. And it's at that point that they realize that Michael is the father of the originals. No one else's names are mentioned, even though they are there, and later on it will be pointed out that they, their names are there. They don't mention Finn, Cole, or Esther's name, so I don't think we know Esther's name yet. And this is her first like physical appearance of the show uh, in a flashback. Michael's pissed because um, he hates it when children have fun. <laughs> No, no, he hates it when Klaus has fun. <laughs> he does, no, he does hate it when Klaus has fun. It really is just Klaus. Klaus is like, ah, ma'am, I wasn't the only one talking. <laughs> <laughs> and yet Michael's so sure that he's the kid who started it. So he picks up a sword and he starts to like, he does that thing when someone sees you succeeding at something and tries to cut you down. He basically starts fighting Klaus as a full-grown man in sword fighting and very obviously beating him down. Disarms him and then holds the sword to Klaus's neck and says he's impulsive and that like fun won't win battles or some other nonsense like that. Uh, and then he says, some days it's a miracle you're still alive, boy. Which boy feels... I know he doesn't know. <laughs> but I know that Klaus is a biracial man, so that boy that he's throwing in there, I don't appreciate I mean, biracial in the sense that <laughs> Klaus has... Klaus canonically has distant indigenous American ancestors. We're gonna get into it. We're gonna get into it because there's some discussion later on where I want us to talk about it in detail. Okay. But regardless, he seems to hate Klaus so profoundly even before he learns that Klaus isn't his biological kid. Mm. I didn't realize that it was to that degree even then. It's such a damning thing about Michael. Like, you can argue deep down he knew somehow, and this was like a subconscious expression of that knowledge. But like, 
I can't imagine knowing your father hates you and you alone amongst your many siblings <laughs> and you've just got no idea why. It's because <laughs> it he was the only blonde boy. <laughs> Michael was like, no. <laughs> That's not my kin. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because later on, uh, when we learn more about the original's backstory in their own series, Esther is talking to Klaus about their history and with a show that goes on as long as Vampire Diaries does and then gets a spin-off series about characters who've been alive for a thousand years, you're bound to get a lot of retcons. But Esther says that when they left the old world and came to the new world with everything that went on there, Michael was actually in quite a funk and quite depressed about all the stuff that had happened to their family or at least what he believed had happened to their family. And even though Elijah was clearly born at some point, either just before they traveled or while they were traveling, because she was heavily pregnant before they left, and you <laughs> traveling by sea would take several months. But anyway, Klaus is born in the New World, and she says that when he was born, like all of Michael's joy returned, and he was so happy. And it seems that for a time, he was actually the favorite child out of the three that they would have had at that point. So I don't know. I don't know at what point Michael just started deciding that he despised Klaus, or he he got this instinctive <laughs> hatred of the one child he was raising that wasn't his. That's fascinating because okay, hold on. Let's do a quick genealogy of the six kids that we know about at the time of the Vampire Diaries. Okay, we'll say first of all, outside of the six, there was a child who died in the old world. And then immediately after that is Elijah, right? Because Elijah's the eldest. Well, there's Finn. Finn is the eldest. Is Finn older than Elijah? Finn is older than Elijah. Okay. And we know that based on what we know from the originals spin-off series. Okay, okay, I see. In my mind, Elijah is the eldest child outside of the one who died. Rebecca tells Elena um, during this conversation where she explains the origin of the originals. She says that her parents lived in Europe and they had a child who died of plague and then they moved to the new world. In the Vampire Diaries, it's never stated when exactly Hoomst was born. So it's, it's easy to assume that Finn and everybody else might have been born after this first child died. But in the originals, we then learn that not only was Finn alive, but that he's actually her twin and she's only older by virtue of having come out of the womb first. So is Finn the kid who's already like a toddler when they hop on the ship and go to the Americas? Finn is already five. He's at least five when they when they leave, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So Finn, Elijah, Klaus, Rebecca? Yes. Nope. Finn, nope. Elijah, Cole? Klaus, Cole. Yes, Cole, then Rebecca. Oh, so Rebecca's the youngest bar Henrik. Yes. I thought she was older than some of the boys. I don't know. She gives me that vibe of like... It's because the boys are childish as hell. That's why. Yeah, that's what it is. She gives me like eldest daughter vibes, which I know is still technically correct if you don't count the first child. So maybe that's why. <laughs> so is Klaus the first one born after they hit the Americas? Presumably. because okay. of Just because of how, how long travel takes and how Esther was visibly pregnant when her first child was lost to her, Elijah must have either been born right before they left or at least while they were at sea. So Klaus would have been the first one born in the New World. That is interesting to be like, when did the turn happen? Maybe I guess the frustrations of living in this New World with other peoples, but also it's they describe it as having been peaceful. 
like up until the point they become vampires it's largely peaceful possibly just like 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 many real life parents maybe michael's joy at this child was you know a baby and once klaus grew old enough to have personality traits that and Michael opinions could not like. and yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe then he was like ew you're not an extension of me like i thought you'd be <laughs> i don't like i need you. to cut you off now <laughs> Cutting away from the flashback, there's a scene with Bonnie and Rick. Bonnie brings Alaric the necklace, Elena's necklace, which refuses to be destroyed, uh, even by magic. He shows her the carvings that they found in the caves, and that one of these carvings matches the emblem on the necklace. The symbol appears a number of times across the wall in the caves. Bonnie figures, based on what her grandmother told her about the necklace's origins, that the symbol must mean witch. And then we cut back to, it's a lot of cutting back to, like, the people figuring out these etchings on the ground, and then Rebecca giving Elena information from the horse's mouth. Rebecca tells Elena that, like you said, um, she tells Elena that their family came to America to escape a plague. Her mother heard from a witch the witch being Ayana, about a land where everyone was healthy and happy. And this is the thing I want to bring up, because Lord knows mm. we're only going to discuss Ayana so many times on this podcast. Multiple questions. First one. Yes. <laughs> Ayana, what connections did you have in America through, like, the witch grapevine? Who were like, hey, yo, there's a really cool town here on the lower coast of north america that you can just come kick it if you'd like i think ayana may have been communing with spirits uh because i'd also wondered that but on my rewatch i think they said that the, the the spirits or something told her of a land where everyone was healthy and strong blessed by supernatural gifts so in like a divinatory sense not in a communication from like witches who died in that area no, yeah probably probably some sort of clairvoyant seeing through through the veil because the other side had already been in existence for a thousand years at that point okay second question i guess they did have a target in mind when they left but when you look at a map and track the journey from norway <laughs> to virginia <laughs> i am not a sailing expert even by modern standards so sailing in a thousand AD, I can't imagine. But the fact that they go from Norway, which is at like the north of Northern Europe, head past so many lands, get to the US, bypassing most of the coast to go dock in the southernmost part of like the eastern shoreline. It's just, I'm so curious to know what the vibe was on deck. I'm so curious to know like, who, the, from the families who aren't the Michaelsons that, that like tagged along because they were like, yeah, we want to live healthily and happily in a new land. At what point did they go, damn, this is a, it's a kind of a long voyage. Our rations are running out. <laughs> oh, I can see land from over here. Oh, no, we're not we're not docking. We're still moving past. Okay. Okay, cool. Seems like, it seems like there's a place that's going to be New York very soon. Give it 500 years. I feel like we could make it work. No. No, we're going to Virginia. Okay. It just <laughs> It was just seasickness and scurvy back in those days. But um see this is this is why I'm like Elijah definitely was at least born at sea. There's no way Elijah was born in the Americas. Like like she couldn't have held it in for that long. <laughs> but <laughs> 
and, and I'm the one who said I did biology. You, you heard it from the former biology student. You can, you can hold in a baby. You can hold it in like a pea. You don't know what magic she can do. You don't, you don't know what the witch Ayana has taught her. Thank you very much. I draw on the power of the elephant and hold my baby in for 20 months. But, but I mean, now that you mention it, we don't actually know for a fact where they docked. It's possible that they docked in what is now Canada or northern United States and then made the rest of a journey on foot. And then moved. That's still fascinating because it's like, again, this is the same issue we had when we were talking about Anna and Pearl of like, we don't know the history of America that far back personally because i'm uh, for anyone who's listening who doesn't know we're not american <laughs> what's the odds of survival in a thousand a.d for going by ship to an unknown land whether you're making the longer journey to dock in virginia or making the shorter journey hitting the coast and then walking through and regardless of odds of survival who are you encountering as you go there are you being chill about it as you move through are you not being aggressive as you encounter the people who own that land it's michael i think you know the answer to the are you being chill and not aggressive question i'm now concerned they've been tearing a bloody trail down the eastern coast to get to that virginia that they end up in it's just it raises a lot of questions thanks to neil gaiman of all people uh oh. love that man but mm-hmm. thanks to him of all people i know that there were actually real life vikings from northern europe who did land in what would eventually become North America long before Columbus and co, quote-unquote, discovered. Do we know that for a fact? Because I know it's a fiction thing that people quote. We do know that for a fact. We, I think Alaric points out that there's no records of them being in Virginia when Rebecca brings it up as she shows up as the new girl at sure. school. Um, but it is it is a fact that they they have found evidence of like I, I don't know whether it tools that Vikings would have used or maybe inscriptions in Viking script, um, but they have found traces of that in North America. Oh, fascinating! To touch on a completely different show, I believe that's why Neil Gaiman, when when he wrote his American Gods novels, had Odin and some of the Norse gods have presence in the United States mm. because he knew for a fact that some people who would have believed in those gods had already been to the Americas many, many centuries ago. Interesting. I think that's... haven't seen the show, but I believe there's a show called Vikings which does that, but I'd assume that it was working off of the theory or rather the, the sort of urban legend that Vikings made the journey to the Americas. Granted, that show is on the History Channel, but the History Channel very often doesn't do like history history they take some liberties as someone who has worked in two history channel tv shows i'm not allowed to say anything (laughs) we're not breaking any ndas today thank you very much so they came to virginia it is very clearly implied that specifically the land that is now mystic falls is where they settled and they lived among the werewolves for 20 years at which point in that time rebecca was born and Cole. And Cole, yes. Because Cole precedes Rebecca. And and baby Henrik. Oh, bless. Bless baby Henrik. He was also born to whatever end. Um, <laughs> he was there. <laughs> oh, bless his heart. So this is the point, right, that we were talking about earlier, is the fact that, like, they came to America, the Michelsons and whichever other families were on the boat, because there are a number of, when they settle in that village, there are a number of Nordic people who are with them in the village. And they refer to the werewolves as their neighbors. Yes. Which means the werewolves were there when they arrived. So the werewolves would have to be indigenous 
to the Americas. Assumedly. Assumedly, yes. Assumedly. I, I don't know where else a thread could come from. Certainly not European threads. I'm not very well versed on how far... I know Polynesians were sailing at this point. There is a period in which um, Polynesian people stopped sailing. A very long period. But I think at this point they were sailing. I don't know if they were on the eastern coast of the US. I don't think geographically that tracks. I don't know, but we but because because of what we eventually learn in the originals, we do know that however they might have presented phenotypically anybody with the werewolf gene in the Vampire Diaries universe must have indigenous American ancestry. It raises a lot of questions that I'm sure they weren't thinking about when it comes to casting. <laughs> and also, <laughs> it raises a lot of questions when it comes to characters. So when I, when I say that Klaus is a biracial man, that is because of the assumption we're working off of. And he has to be directly, right? It's not like a descendant thing where it's like, you could say Tyler maybe has like a, a however many a fraction of indigenous like ancestry that's the thing within within the framing of vampire diaries season three absolutely that was how i read it i was like okay so we're just gonna pretend that joseph morgan this <laughs> welsh english raised man with with dark blonde hair and blue eyes <laughs> is half native american He's and half, half nordic okay <laughs> But when we eventually see the actor who plays his birth father in the original spinoff, spoiler alert, we see his father. He is a he is a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white man. So the way that I read it was that okay, we're gonna say there's no way that we're saying that this man, whose name is Ansel of all things, is is is, is is an indigenous American. So I'm going to assume that before Esther and Michael and their little group came to the americas there must have been some other white people who came to the same area and intermarried with the indigenous folk enough times so that a person who presents very much as looking european was descended from this native american werewolf bloodline and was able to sire klaus ansel is like a germanic name too so it would have had to have been like prior germanic people that doesn't how does that track? I mean, in this universe, which is vaguely going off real-life stuff of Vikings coming to North America, right. I could believe that maybe like three or four generations, however many generations it gets to make a person look really white, <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, three or four generations before someone came along with their village and that is who Ansel's ancestors are, at least on his European side. I'm almost certain the math doesn't work, and I refuse to make it work on principle for people who didn't think this through, is all I'm saying. Because I just mean there's there, there's no way that they went out of their way to cast this very white-looking man as Klaus's father and gave him a name like Ansel and then said, oh no, he's like fully indigenous. Like I don't think absolutely. they thought like about there's... it. I think they entrapped themselves. So when they had to cast him, it would be unconscionable to cast... I mean... Obviously, in any scenario, it would be preferable to cast an indigenous person. But to now cast an indigenous person and say, that's Joseph Morgan's father in this story. I think I think the reason I believe in my theory is because it is in the originals where we then learn about the origin of werewolves. They could have very much fixed that origin so that the first werewolves weren't all Native Americans. But they chose 
to leave it that way, which is what makes me think, okay, Ansel is like, I don't know, one-eighth Native American or something. (laughs) (laughs) In any case. Okay, once a month, when the werewolves were doing their thing on the full moon, the Michaelsons, and assumedly the other people in their village, would retreat to these caves underground and wait for the night to pass and for the howling to pass so that they'd know it was safe to come up again and everything was chill. We see Rebecca looking at this necklace, uh, the same necklace that has been uh, the purview of the show for the last couple of episodes, and it burns her. And that's when we see Ayana. I guess we don't know her name. I think later onwards do we learn it. No, it has to be Rebecca now. Does. Rebecca think, says, think, Ayana, you Rebecca burned does. me. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. yes, 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 yes. Sorry, yes. Uh, Rebecca says, She Ayana, has a name, Sandina. I, I assume... <laughs> negatively for when it comes to black people on this show so forgive me that instinct fair um, very fair ayana rightfully says it's not yours to touch klaus shows up he is screaming bloody murder he is carrying his little brother henrik who we've only seen flashes of he's just this little kid always running around but he is in klaus's arms he is covered in blood and they bring him into the hut and he says that the two of them snuck out to watch the werewolves turn and uh, one of them, in their werewolf form, attacked Henrik, and Henrik has been ripped apart. I mean, honestly, he didn't look that bad. I... He, he <laughs> did, it really felt kind of localized to the chest, right? Like, I think a you werewolf know, could have done a lot worse. <laughs> I was just thinking about how in the, in the episode that we see Jules turning into a werewolf for the first, mm. and Tyler has his first werewolf transformation that same night. When Jules wakes up the next day, she's asleep near, like, this campsite, and she has butchered the men who were camping Decimated. there like there's limbs lying across like headless torsos and then henry just like has a few gashes across his chest i was like Klaus, are you, <laughs> you sure this was a wolf <laughs> <laughs> esther asks ayana to help her and ayana says that nothing can be done because the kid's already dead and rebecca says that was the beginning of the end of peace with the werewolves and in my mind i'm like does this mean you became hostile to them? Or like, what does that mean? Because we don't talk about it in great detail. We just get from Michael in a later flashback that he wants to now have his family be superior to them in terms of strength and speed and agility and all these things so that they can never be harmed again. But like the way Rebecca says that feels like the blame is being placed on the werewolves, which I take issue with because it's like, again, the werewolves were always here. Mm. You as a people made the choice to come settle on their land. You were made aware of their deal, right? Well enough that you'll know to go somewhere underground when they're wolfing out and it lasts one night. It's one night out of every month. It's, it's, it's not a lot to ask. And then your idiot brothers ran over there and got too close and one of them got bitten. How is that the werewolf's fault? Is what I'm, I'm like... <laughs> I, I'm not saying it's definitely what she was implying, but it felt like it. It's possible she just meant um, that 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 situation led to the creation of vampires, which led to the revelation of what Klaus was, which led to Michael starting the war between vampires and werewolves by butchering Ansel and like his whole family. Maybe that's just what she Which meant. again is all them. I, I just that that doesn't <laughs> that actually adds to the point I'm trying to make, which is like that wasn't on the werewolves. That is you guys starting. I mean, a Rebecca whole lot of Rebecca trouble. didn't say those damn wolves brought this upon themselves. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. 
Again, I'm assuming negatively. I will check myself. <laughs> At this point in her retelling of events, Rebecca starts getting smarmy and Elena's like, okay, well, I'm going to go. And Rebecca finally tells her that the original witch turn them into vampires they're trying to be coy about original witch at this point because at the time we don't know that it's esther and there's this witch who's been introduced ayana so i guess you have an assumption that Ayana's the one who they're talking about ah. which again would make sense because later esther tells them that ayana is the one who taught me she was a friend and a mentor so how can you be the original witch if a witch who's <laughs> standing right next to you <laughs> taught you everything you know um which of the original family it's fine they say it in this in in this flashback yeah that was how i always read it and and as i've said as i've said many times there were a lot of people in the fandom who read it as oh esther was the first witch and i was always like that's i don't think that's what they meant and it can't be if ayana was her mentor i think it just means witch of the original family it's like it's like when i'm reading arthurian legend and i hear about the black knight i don't assume he was a black person i'm just like <laughs> he was a, he was a knight whose armor was black i get it i guess i take issue with the title of it all okay well i mean you know it's it's the michaelsons they've always been very proud <laughs> i do not dispute the logic works it's just the fact that now it's like my title the original it's like okay Anyway, Rebecca's listening in to her parents, who are begging Ayana to ask the spirits for help in fighting the werewolves. Again, the werewolves weren't fighting them, so I don't know what that's about. Not fighting, protecting themselves from the wolves. I mean, I don't know why they couldn't just stay in the cave. Stay like in the cave! Had. You've been protected from the wolves up until this point. Your stupidity got you hurt. Hey, and you know what's an even better solution? Leave. Leave the land that you showed up to second, my guy. Take your family and head north. Not to keep touching on the spin-off series too much, uh -huh. but another retcon from the originals is that Esther had other motivations for wanting to do what she did to her children. So, it, like, if you, if you take all of the history of the show as it is established, it's not just because the wolves frightened her it's because she was like oh you know there, there are other reasons why i feel like doing this now that the opportunity has presented itself let me just <laughs> i read it as because this bit about the werewolves i didn't i guess i didn't catch on my first watch but my understanding was that it was a desire to preserve their children and to make sure that they wouldn't be harmed by anything that like after losing a child to plague and now losing a child to uh, a gruesome attack, it's like, we don't want to lose any more children. Let's make them immortal, which is still an irrational, like extreme, but they, they do magic. So it makes sense in that regard. I didn't realize that such a big aspect of it was directly opposing the wolves who again, have no ill will towards their family or their people they just have this thing they have to deal with every month and there are safeguards in place i think at that point it's not necessarily opposition it's more just it's a shield rather than a weapon initially i think that's what it is and the extreme lengths at which they go to create this metaphorical shield i shan't judge because i'm not a parent and i don't know what it's like to lose a child <laughs> much less two yeah <laughs> I also think there's a lot of Michael's pride in it, right? Because in the scene, he's the one going, we need to be stronger, we need to be faster. My children will be superior to the wolves. You know, he's a, he's a medieval man. He's a Viking. He's a Viking. He's all about the battle and the war and all that stuff. So yeah, it, it just, it does track. It just makes me go, y'all suck. 
just so you know. Well, they're the Michelsons. We we know they suck. <laughs> but yes, uh, Rebecca explains that vampirism was never meant to be a curse. It was meant to be a weapon in the hands of their children. A form of protection. She, You see, in, in, in that scene, I believe she says a form of protection. Because Elena asks, Elena asks, so vampirism was meant to be a form of protection. And then Rebecca says, well, what did you think it was? And then um, Elena is like, oh, uh, curse. And then Rebecca explains, no, no. Ayana, having been a witch for far longer, warns them that what they're talking about is a whole nother plague. Okay, And as people who just escape a plague, I need you to understand the gravity of that. The spirits will turn on you if you do this. And then Michael tells Esther... It's in her hands. Which, I, you know, I don't particularly care for Michael, but that little bit, it kind of spits in the face of him as a character, but I think it was fun for him to be like, I defer to you, my wife. Which, I mean, you could read as he can't do magic, so it's not like he can do it. But the fact that he's saying, I leave the decision in your hands, not, okay, well, you're going to do this for our kids. Is that, I actually read it as him saying, by him saying, it's in your hands. I, I read it as him saying, you have to do this because Ayana won't. Like... I, I thought because Ayana was her mentor and uh, Ayana was better at magic and from what we learned in the originals, Esther actually hadn't been doing a lot of magic for years now. Not not really. I assumed that it was, they, they asked Ayana to do it. Ayana was like, hell no. And then Michael was like, well, if she's not going to do it, then I guess you'll, we'll use your bootleg version of magic. <laughs> I hate that. That makes more sense in keeping with Michael. I was just really excited for him to be like, well, you're the witch and you know better than me. So I, I leave the decision. A 10th century husband, Sundile. You're yeah. asking a lot for a, from a 10th century man. Um, now I'm sad. At this point, uh, Elena's like, why would your mother be able to do anything? And Rebecca was like, oh yeah, my mom was also a witch. I don't know if I failed to mention that earlier in the story. The witch of the original family, the original witch. Yeah, real smart, Rebecca. Then they discuss about the fact that like is Rebecca a witch and she explains that you cannot be a witch and a vampire at the same time you have to be one or the other because one is a servant of nature and one is an abhorrence a oppositional force to nature she explains that her mother didn't turn she did just turn the kids and then later Michael they don't speak about it definitively but we sort of vaguely learn at some point that Michael has also been turned into a vampire I assumed he did it first I didn't I, when he walks in and, well, I'll get into it and then I'll say. But Rebecca describes that her mother called upon the sun for life, the ancient white oak tree, nature's sign for immortality. And Michael offered the children wine laced with blood and then killed them. Well, we don't see it happen, but we see Klaus, Elijah, Rebecca... We don't... Do we see the others at that point? I don't think so. We don't. I think... I think... Uh, I don't even know if Cole and Finn had been cast yet, but I don't think Daniel Gillies was available because in that scene, we see Klaus and Rebecca wake up in transition. Presumably, their siblings were, like, in another room somewhere, scattered... Wherever Michael had stabbed them when he did what he did. Because he did have to come in. They're all... have got, like, blood on their abdomens, and you can see when... When Michael comes in later, he's got this big sword hanging from his waist. It's like, Jesus, dude, you just came in and stabbed all your kids? That's crazy. Especially knowing that, like, Esther was making something new. She'd not been practicing that long. Ayana was a mentor, yes. But, like, to create this new thing that you've been told nature will fight against you about it, it's crazy that he was like, yeah, no, I'll run a sword through all my children. That's why I think Michael had already turned... Because um, it's in that scene where he brings in a young woman yep. for Klaus and Rebecca to drink from to complete their transition. 
And even though later on, once again, <laughs> in the originals, all these retcons, the originals later on states that Klaus and his siblings did not learn how to compel until like a century after being vampires, I think it is. I think they only learn compulsion when they're staying with the Dumartels, which is a wild retcon. But it seems like in that scene, this girl is in a trance because she doesn't try to fight. She doesn't look distressed at all. Michael just leads her in slices open her arm and forces Rebecca to drink from her and she's she's chilled and I assume that Michael had already turned at that point and compelled this girl but I mean it's it's not definitive for all I know Michael himself was in transition or maybe he hadn't turned yet I that was just how I read it and maybe, maybe this girl was just I she was know, just a wallflower type person yeah oh the the exhaustion trick coming into play once more she was tired there's nothing she could do no it's absolutely possible he just roused her from her sleep and just dragged her and it's like well, he's the patriarch of this village. I'm not going to be able to fight him. It is the 10th century after all. Or maybe maybe Esther used uh, a witch version of compulsion. We do know that witches can also alter people's minds in this universe. So maybe Esther just enchanted her to be... Maybe it, w- it was a simple... They gave her chamomile. They just made her a little bit drowsy and sleepy. And then they said <laughs> drag her in there. Oh, There's a no. hundred different reasons. It's awful, but... They drugged it's, her. No, they could have drugged her and brought her to a slaughter. But in any case, he stabs all his kids and they die. And then they wake up in transition. And he brings in this random girl for them to feed on. Rebecca then goes to describe um, Ayana's vindication, essentially. In that there would be consequences to this. And I love, it's stuff we've always known about vampires from the beginning, because we know a bunch of vampires already. We've spent two and a quarter seasons with vampires, so we know all the things about vampires. But the the symmetry of their creation and their existence, it's just something I love about magical symmetry. It's a constant of witchcraft in this show specifically the idea that nature must maintain a balance but i love when magic in in any sort of story has a symmetry to it or has like an equivalence to it so rebecca says for every strength there was a weakness like getting burned by sunlight the very sun that was harnessed for the spell for which esther then created lapis lazuli rings that they could wear and walk in the daylight the daylight rings Their neighbors, who had welcomed them prior, were able to keep them out. The flowers that grew at the base of the white oak tree, the tree that was the symbol of immortality, burned them when they touched and prevented compulsion. These are vervain flowers. You see, that's why I assumed that compulsion was a trick they got on day one, if Rebecca is mentioning this during the flashback where she first gets burned by vervain. Yeah. Like days after becoming a vampire so yeah it's not definitive but from it being mentioned immediately you would assume that it's something they tested immediately because all the other little details she's mentioning are stuff you see happening in the scene the 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 vervain burns a hand the sunlight burns them when they try to step out the people closing their doors it's all happening actively in the scene so it's reasonable to assume the compulsion is also in that present time i'm more fascinated by the fact that like the vervain growing at the the base of the tree was vervain one indigenous to the area and then two only indigenous to the area does vervain that grows elsewhere in the world work the same is vervain from the white oak tree i actually think that i googled it recently i think vervain is only found in north america i might be wrong let me look it up real quick I don't think it's related to white oak trees, though. Oh, no, it's actually, it actually says that it's native to Europe, so they must have brought it with them, I guess. <laughs> well, 
The Wikipedia page says it is widely naturalized outside of its native range, for example, in North America. Yeah. So then is it that the vervain growing at the base of the oak tree was a happenstance? And because of the spell that was done, now vervain as a plant type is now dangerous to them. It's not that it grew... Well, it couldn't grow from the oak. Nature just reached for the closest thing and said, that's a weapon to you. Now. Yeah, I assume it's the former. Some of the the magic, the consequential magic that was in the white oak tree spilled over into the flowers that were growing at its base. Either way, I love it. Also, the way, the, the, the way in which we see Gloria using vervain and some other herbs in a spell a few episodes prior suggests that vervain is already magical, at least in that witches can use it for magic mm -hmm. on its own. So possibly because it because it already had some latent magical properties, that was why it then became a weapon against vampires. I like to think of of it's not endemic to vampire diaries, but like ingredients that witches consider important or that consider to have magical properties. I like to think of it as they're magical in the right hands. In regular Joe's hands, they're just plants. In the same way that, like, uh, uh, for example, a certain ingredient that you use in cooking. If you use it in this one dish, it might do a certain thing. But if you use it in this other dish, it does something completely different. It's all in you knowing the uses and how to draw those out. That's how I think of, like... So So the fact that vervain is magical doesn't mean that the vervain contains magic in it, but that when applied a certain way, it yields a magical effect. Or like how when, when you apply mathematics, you're so good with it, and when I do, my brain breaks. <laughs> no, it's just... Please. We're having such a fun time. Don't bring math I don't, into I it. don't have the magical powers you have. <laughs> uh, oh, also, the, the tree that gave them life, the white oak, could take it away. Um, and so they burned it to the ground. Um, and it never came back ever again. I, I, I've always wondered, who told them that the white oak tree could kill them? Because they could feel the sun burning them. They could feel the vervain burning them. They could see that they couldn't enter people's homes without permission. Did, like, did some sort of, I don't know, liaison <laughs> from the other side, some spirit guy just appear and be like, oh, guys, just letting you know. Who would let them know? No one likes them on the other side. They've done the thing they were expressly told not to do. Who's the kindly soul that said, be wary of that oak? Maybe it was more witch clairvoyance, like Ayana or Esther just sensed that, oh, this tree can kill you. And they were like, oh, okay, got it, got it. We're not going to test it out, but we, we believe you. I like to think that Ayana at a certain point post the creation of the original vampires experienced a very similar situation to bonnie when the witches cut her off at the end of season two they were like listen this mess that you keep getting into that we keep having to get you out of we're washing our hands off you you're done hey she and tried she tried hey <laughs> she she stepped back and she was like i'm not gonna help you esther i don't uh no <laughs> i think if ayana told them hey listen watch out for that white oak the witches was like you little well that's it you're done You'll never see us again. You'll never hear. See if we tell you about another magical land where everybody's <laughs> chilling and sitting pretty. We will not be telling you, Miss Ma'am. Thank you. Okay, maybe it was Esther. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to. Th we just have to assume that magically Esther knew. Also, Rebecca explains that 
they then got the hunger for blood. And with that, the predatory species was born, is her exact quote. Yes. Just wanted to touch on that scene. It's not as relevant to, like, Esther, but I I mean, it is her spell, her creation. It is the creation of the original vampires. Her biggest claim to fame. So it must be discussed, but also because I I just love magic and witchcraft, and I really liked this uh, explanation. I don't know if we were going to touch on it in this episode, but we later on learn in the Vampire Diaries that the spell that Esther used to create the originals, she didn't make from scratch. It was a remixed version of the immortal spell that Ketsia and Silas created. So this once again becomes an issue of retcon because let's try and logic this one out. Ayana said no. Ayana said I'm not helping. So we have to assume Esther didn't have access to... She had access to the tools that Ayana had already given her, the tools and knowledge that Ayana had already given her. But I'm assuming Ayana wasn't like, here's my grimoires. We know Ayana's a descendant of Ketsia. Yes. Who is the witch who created the immortality spell. So that's the most logical through line that could have happened but how would esther have remixed it if ayana said i'm not helping you out maybe esther was also communing communing with spirits on the other side and she got some deets from some dark witches that if we're gonna talk about dark witches because what is that they say it a number of times during this well okay in the vampire diaries universe bad magic is very vague (laughs) because even I think when when they first start speaking about dark magic, I think it's season three, they differentiated from spirit magic. And yet we then learn when the whole Traveler saga happens that the spirit magic is the type of magic that made vampires in the first place. So spirit magic can be bad. So yeah, I guess in in TVD, it's, it's, it's vague. All magic can be bad or good. Magic is neutral. Yeah, yeah. Magical knowledge is written by the most powerful, not necessarily the most correct. So it's very possible that, like, people who use spirit magic decided only their magic was good, and everyone else was like, actually, no, we have our own stuff going on. It's just maybe not as flashy as yours, and so you labeled it as bad. Like, that's very much a thing that happens in... It's a thing that happened in my own book that no one will ever read or see, but it's it's very possible that... that now. <laughs> it's very possible that spirit witches were like, just our magic. Everybody else... We don't like that shit. So, you know, propaganda down the ages. I know we, we like to assume benevolence on the part of witches because most of the witches we encounter, pretty pretty chill. But as a collective, you never know. Maybe back in the day they were like, we're actually in our villain era. Perhaps. Or at least our supremacy era. Who knows? I think uh, because once we meet Silas and we find out what kind of an immortal he is and he goes out of his way to differentiate himself from vampires, I think he tells someone that, oh, vampires are just a perversion of me. I came first. And we see that Silas doesn't have fangs. He doesn't have vamp speed, although I think he is quite strong. Still needs blood, though. Yes, he still needs blood. He he physically cuts people with blades in order to drink blood from them, but he never ever gets the veiny bloodshot eyes. Such a fascinating visual, having been so used to the veiny bloodshot eyes. Yeah, yeah. Just a dude walking up to you, using his mind powers to... Because he also has mind powers, and just casually cuts you open with a blade and starts drinking from you and it's like oh you're not even like a monster physically this feels weird in the scene where rebecca explains the origin of vampires she says that 
all their abilities were meant to be like you know one upping the werewolves at least the werewolves in human form mm. and that's that's why she said where, where they could bite we had to bite harder where they could run we had to be faster and i think those are maybe the alterations estimate to the spell like giving them super speed giving them fangs mm. um as vampires because the werewolves get fangs as they start to turn into wolf form so i i interpreted it as oh maybe esther had some maybe not even complete knowledge maybe like vague spotty knowledge of this immortality spell and she was like okay i'm gonna take this spell but i'm also gonna add little adjustments to it that will make us physically a match for werewolves not just unkillable but also able to you know maybe maybe push back a little bit so maybe maybe it was a weapon maybe it wasn't just protection <laughs> maybe it was also like <laughs> you know she, she very if you're coming at me i want the, i want the power to run away or to push you off <laughs> yeah or to bite you back <laughs> she said i want the power for you to rip men limb from limbs that shield is looking a lot a lot more like a sword with every description <laughs> um but also it's funny <laughs> esther did the thousand ad witch version of putting raisins in the potato salad and i think that's <laughs> fascinating <laughs> Uh, remind me because i've forgotten does does silas burn in the sun no no he just walks around oh see so so whatever it is that ketzia did to make silas immortal esther clearly had to do something different she used the sun she used the white oak tree so she was yeah it was it was the esther cover version of ketzia's spell she she was spaza shopping (laughs) that thing in her backyard well i don't remember the ketzia one too well but we'll get into it hopefully at a later stage because we're gonna obviously look into season four at some point that is the origin of the originals. In a later scene, Damon and Stefan are at a bar for reasons that don't largely matter right now. And they're busy bickering about the fact that Stefan still is compelled by and beholden to Klaus. Damon's trying to win him over in the fight, I suppose. And Stefan says there's no point because Klaus can't be killed. Someone approaches saying maybe he can help. And if you don't recognize the voice, it's in the immediate next frame when he walks in that you see that it's Michael. So Michael, I guess, now having fully fed on Catherine, we don't really check back in with them up until this point. It really is Michael grabbing Catherine and feeding on her and then nothing for like two episodes, three episodes. <laughs> I honestly thought she was dead because I didn't know how exsanguination would affect a vampire <laughs> in this show. So for a while I was like, is that it? Is Catherine dead? <laughs> Imagine they kill her off screen. Insanity. Back to Elena and Rebecca. Elena asked Rebecca why Michael started hunting Klaus. Rebecca explains that when Klaus made his first kill, this is post-vampirism, it triggered his werewolf gene. We know from Tyler in a prior season that in order to become a triggered werewolf, you have to kill somebody. And it's at that point that Michael realized or deduced that Esther had had an affair with one of their neighboring werewolves. Esther then used magic to suppress Klaus's werewolf side and shunned Klaus, which, you know, is a lot. 10th century, I, I don't want to... I don't want to assume because a woman has magical power, she's now suddenly not beholden to the same standards that other women are of her time. Mm. But that's a lot to do to, like, placate this man. Michael never gets over it. There's this thing that Rebecca says about vampirism enhancing your... I don't know if it's suggested that it's your core traits or your worst traits, but she says that Michael's greatest weakness was his pride, and it became heightened after he turned. Michael then went on a rampage and killed half the werewolf village, then came home and killed his wife. As Klaus watched, 
and afterwards took off in a rage. Klaus stayed behind to bury their mother. Rebecca, of course, also has stayed behind. And so she and Nick bury her. And then Elijah comes from off screen and it turns out, yeah, I've also not left. So I guess it's just us guys. Or rather, this these are just the people we have on cast at the moment. So this is what <laughs> yes. we're doing. It's probably that. Elijah's in the scene because he was back for the episode. Yes. So. <laughs> at the bar with Damon and Stefan and now Michael... Michael is busy quizzing Stefan on Klaus, basically showing them that, like, I can kill Klaus, I'm the man to do it, so here I am. I have to say, for someone who's touted as being the ultimate vampire hunter, right, the vampire who hunts vampires, they say it a number of times, his methods don't exactly scream, I'm the best hunter that's ever been. Because for as much as he says in the scene, I found you guys, the Salvators. That's how good I am at my job. It's like, I found the Salvators knowing nothing about you or where you live. Which is like, you could have just compelled Catherine, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) We know the originals can compel regular vampires, so that's an easy get. But assuming he found them all of his investigative prowess, his plan to get to Klaus is just forcing other people to solve his problems. Which is something literally every character on this show with an ounce of power or leverage can and does do. He just gets Stefan to bring Klaus to him and says, if you don't, I'll kill you. Which, I don't know. <laughs> like, do you get what I'm saying? Like, that's not a, a really emblematic of how good a vampire hunter you are. You're doing the thing that everyone does, which is to, like, get leverage over somebody and make them do the thing. I see what you mean. I mean... I, I don't know I don't know if I thought of him as being good in that he's like super skillful. I just thought good as in he's ruthless and destroys everything in his path if he needs to. Um they 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 say throughout the throughout the series and the other series they say that oh Michael has burned cities to the ground in pursuit of his children. Yeah. <laughs> I guess whether you're using a rogue's knife or a warhammer you can still get the same job done. Just one of them is going to look a lot you know? bloodier than the other um i i guess also i mean he is a viking right and i think it might not be in the vampire diaries it might be in the originals where we learn he was a berserker which i think i can't remember if it's largely a mythos thing or if it was a real thing but there were these norse warriors who would put on the like uh skulls and pelts of animals and go into this fearsome battle rage to fight off their enemies. Um, And they were said to be more, like, violent and impressive and terrifying compared to the average Norse soldier or Viking. So he's said to be of the Berserkers, so I guess it's not surprising the burning the cities down to get to what you want. But yeah, that is Michael's ultimatum at the end of the episode, which brings us to Homecoming, the ninth episode of season three. In this episode, they start off with a very heist-esque opening. It's like, here's what's happening in present. And then one hour earlier, when we were making the plan. <laughs> it's it's yes. always a great way to introduce <laughs> events. But essentially, the plan is to kill Klaus. Stefan, Damon, Elena, and Michael have hatched this plan. Which is to lure Klaus back to Mystic Falls. We pretend that we've daggered Michael who came to dagger Rebecca with one of the those metal daggers that are dipped in white oak ash. 
Elena got hold of the dagger and daggered Michael. Because as we know, a vampire can't dagger an original without them also dying. We say Michael's been daggered. We lure Klaus back in because he'll want to see the body. And then we jump him and Michael kills him. Because Klaus is naturally untrusting and because Stefan is currently compelled by Klaus and so will be expected to tell the truth, Elena actually daggers Michael at his behest so that Stefan will not be lying when he says this to Klaus. Rebecca, who at this point has been informed by Elena that it is not actually Michael who killed their mother, it's Klaus. Elena knows this because of the etchings on the wall which tell their story that the hybrid killed the witch and buried her. So now Rebecca, in the throes of Klaus's betrayal and grief over her mother, has agreed to help them slay Klaus. On the phone with Klaus, Stefan says, Michael's dead. Here's the lowdown of what happened. He says, are you telling the truth? Did you see this go down? Stefan says, I did see this go down because he did see it go down. He gets away on a technicality. He's very lucky that Klaus asked the way that he asked. <laughs> the luck of that is impressive. But then he says, well, if Michael's dead, then I want to speak to Rebecca. Where's my sister? Rebecca, right there in the room, goes, hey, I'm here too. I saw it go down exactly as they said. We're free. I miss you. Come home. Which, Klaus is an untrusting sort to begin with. But I think that's when he clocked it, when Rebecca got on the phone. Because I don't know where she got the confidence to be like, he bought it. Because she closes the phone afterwards and he's like, Nick bought it. And it's like, girl, you gave the least convincing delivery in the history <laughs> of lies. Like, she says it so softly and demurely. And it's like, you're very clearly not overjoyed by this. I, I know you could read it as, well, my father's been slain for as much as this foe that's been hunting us down for centuries is dead my father is dead but i don't know if you i don't know if someone who's already seeking betrayal from every corner is gonna assume the best of you so i think that's when klaus clocked okay something fishy's going on regardless he says i'm coming to mystic falls to see and make sure that he's dead and Michael says, I'm going to use a white oak stake to kill him, which he does not disclose the location of because he says that's my one leverage. Later, Michael wakes up from the daggering. Rebecca's the only one left there at the Salvatore house with him. She is not pleased at all to see him. He asks where the dagger is, and she tells him that Elena has it, so he can forget about using it on her. Which, Michael's face does drop a little bit, which is like... Okay, he says that it was never her he was after. I'm iffy on that because obviously based on how things went down in the past, Klaus is his number one priority. But his whole deal, right, both his and Esther's deal, which is interesting, from like separate avenues right now as they come into the season, their whole deal is to undo what they did all those centuries ago. I wouldn't just take him at his word that he wasn't going to execute her and Elijah as well if he found them with Klaus. Knowing what we learn later, I don't think Michael hated his other children the way that he hated Klaus. I think it's just that they were all together when they were together. For example, in the periods in which Cole is no longer with Elijah, Klaus, and Rebecca, I don't think he ever makes any mention of being afraid that Michael would find him. In fact, in fact, there is a scene in the originals, in a flashback, in which um finn is daggered you know as as he is as he always <laughs> he's, is he's been, <laughs> he's been daggered for some time oh honey and then and i think michael is coming michael is on his way to wherever it is they are now 
and you don't see Rebecca, but Elijah comes in and finds that Cole is like lulling about. And he's like, uh, dude, we got to go. Like, wh why are you hanging here? And then he's, he says that uh, Finn and Rebecca have already boarded the ship. It's imperative that we stick together. And Cole is like, well, you know, Rebecca does what she's told because she's scared of Niklaus. And Finn is a, a corpse in a coffin right now. He's not going to argue. <laughs> Cole actually does point out that Michael is really only after Klaus, so I could stay here and chill if I wanted to. I don't need to go with Nick Klaus and be in danger. So I think at least Cole knew that it was it was only their proximity to Klaus that placed them in danger. Maybe Rebecca didn't know that. Yeah. She does say after after he says it was never her he was after, she says that she would never abandon her brother. So effectively he was after them both. She also points out that the thing that he blames Klaus for was born of his own making, Michael's own making, when he had Esther turn them into vampires. So the thing that you hate him for, that you've marked him for death for, is your fault. Which I think between, like, comparing Esther and Michael, Esther understands that fact implicitly, whereas Michael is still working off of, like, pride and anger. Mm. Um is my read on the comparison. This episode is called Homecoming because there's a homecoming dance going on as a backdrop that Caroline is organizing because Caroline's apparently the whole student body. It's a, it's a homecoming dance? Really? <laughs> Not another founders parade or some worship of their ancestors? Not a founders event! Believe it or not, it is a school sanctioned event and not a confederate worship Thank party. goodness. The gym of the school where they were going to host the homecoming party is flooded. Mysteriously so. Tyler then moves the party to his house, which we later learn is a part of Klaus's plan. Tyler, who now as a hybrid has been side to Klaus, he basically does anything that Klaus asks him to do. Once he's there, he says to the main characters arriving to the party that they're not at homecoming, but they're at a wake for Michael. So that's the first sign of like, ooh, something's wrong here. Which is like, it's Klaus, you should expect that. In a subsequent scene, Michael returns to the Salvatore house to check in, and he's got now the white oak steak on him. Damon is there. I think he's the only one there because everyone else has gone off to lay the trap essentially for Klaus. Damon, in conversation with Michael, asks him why he feeds on vampires. And Michael explains that when he helped make his children into vampires, the bloodlust was never his intention. So, over time, he's learned to feed on the predator rather than the innocent. This is particularly interesting to me in a weird way, because on the subject of strong-willed fathers, there is a Bill Forbes parallel here. Bill, who trains himself to resist vampire compulsion, Bill, Caroline's father, um, who's like a founding family, town council, vampire hater type. Though Michael is himself a vampire, the fact that he spends centuries honing his body to defy this, like, preternatural materiality um, through sheer willpower, the same way that Bill hones his mind for decades to do the same thing. I just thought that was a very interesting parallel of, like, Michael and Bill Forbes, kind of similar men. Hundreds of years apart between them, of course, but, like, they both hate vampires with a passion. They both seek their destruction. They're both very, like, authoritarian figures. Bill has less of an impact in the way that Michael does because Bill is absent for most of the show and also loves his child. <laughs> <laughs> 
Michael Michael loves his children, his his biological children. <laughs> To an extent. <laughs> I was about to say, is it in a healthy way? And then I remembered that Bill tortures his child to try and erase the vampire out of her. So, you know. You know? Maybe more so a comparison to be made. Stefan comes back at this point to the Salvatore house to inform them that Klaus and him have had a conversation. And he's changed the plans. He's not coming to see the body. He wants the body delivered to the house where the wake is happening. Stefan seems to think that this is a hitch in their plans. Damon, however, reveals that he's had his own plan cooking, and Michael attacks Stefan, draining him to unconsciousness. Damon looks horrified by this, as if he hasn't signed a deal with the devil in this plan is made. It's it's a little bit like, okay, Damon, I don't know what you were expecting. It becomes clear that the plan Damon's talking about is distracting Klaus with like an obvious frontal attack while he himself comes in for the kill but as we learn from klaus's warnings to tyler and elena like throughout the party as they've been moving around klaus has been surviving death marks for centuries so he's always two steps ahead one of klaus's hybrids at the wake it's called a wake but it's like edm music going on in the background and everyone's partying um <laughs> one of klaus's hybrids comes up to him and tells him that he has a visitor by the name of michael klaus says that they shouldn't keep him waiting and he goes off to meet michael who he has not seen in a good long while well he didn't see him in chicago so it's got to be longer than like the 90 years it's been michael meets him at the entrance of the lockwood mansion and says that Klaus should come outside so he can kill him. <laughs> it's just a really matter-of-fact uh, statement. Klaus refuses. They get into an argument. There's a lot of back and forth. Klaus declares that you can't touch me from in here. I've got my army with me. You know what? His army that was apparently rightfully prepared. Michael points out that his hybrids are still part vampire and can therefore be compelled by him. Quite a cool moment. The same hybrid that came to warn him that Michael has arrived comes over to his side and brings Elena over. <laughs> so Klaus's face, it's, it's an image I want like plastered on my wall, just like the drop of his face when he sees that he's been fooled. Because Klaus is so rarely fooled, at least in the Vampire Diaries. So Michael grabs Elena, threatens to kill her. Elena's crying. She's like, no, she's really going to do it, Klaus, please. Michael tells Klaus that he has nobody by his side other than those whose loyalty he's forced, which is such a poignant line. Klaus refuses to back down, doesn't believe that Michael's going to do it, and tells Michael that he's always underestimated him all his life and says that he's calling his bluff and shouts at Michael to kill her. Michael chuckles and says, your impulse, Niklaus, it is... It is what has always kept you from being truly great. And then plunges a knife into Elena's back. Uh, Klaus is stunned. He like gasps a very throaty sound. But before he can do anything about it, Damon launches in, stabs him in the stomach with the white oak stake. Damon went in for like, I guess, the theatrics of it. I don't understand why he went for the stomach first. Why wouldn't you go straight for the chest when you have like a surprise round? of combat not to bring it to a place of DD, but like <laughs> why didn't you immediately stab him in the chest did you want to be like it was me haha <laughs> like what's the what's the merit in that it is a very daemon choice but like 
that's the thing that gets them screwed up. It's it, it happens quite a lot in the Vampire Diaries where we know that you have to go for the heart to kill. There's always someone missing and hitting the stomach or the clavicle or, you know, the, the right-hand side of the sternum. I, these people have bad aim, I guess. That's what I'm saying. It's like, it's not a question of, oh, you're rushing in for a strike. You got to hit where you're first. You've got vampire speed. You've got the time. I mean, I don't know if it works the same way where it's like bullet time. Where for you, you're moving at a normal speed, but the rest of the world is slowed down. And so you have the time and the wherewithal to go, here's where I need to hit. I lift my weapon. I strike. Maybe like with the momentum and how quickly they're rushing, it's not like an accurate down to a science. But I just, I wish there was a logical reason why you couldn't just strike the test. Anyway, long term, it's probably for the best he didn't, learning what we learned yes. later. But he knocks Klaus down. Meanwhile... <laughs> In true fashion, Catherine, who was impersonating Elena, reveals herself to Michael and distracts him. At this point, I thought Catherine was working with Damon and Michael. Because in my mind, I was like, okay, we last saw Catherine with Michael. She's not dead, apparently. So that means she must either be compelled by him or working with him because everyone wants Klaus dead. And the first thing she does when it's like, oh, damn, it's not Elena, it's Catherine. She pulls out two Wolfsbane grenades, throws them out at the hybrids who are coming in to, to defend Klaus. They explode and they're all incapacitated. So I'm like, yeah, Catherine's with the plan. But then <laughs> Stefan comes out out of nowhere, gets Damon away from Klaus, and then Klaus grabs the white oak stake and stabs Michael, who's been distracted. Michael collapsed to the ground with stake in chest and begins to burn to his death. Like me, Damon is fully stunned, <laughs> completely shocked because this was not part of the plan. Once this has happened and Michael is dead, Clausen goes over to Stefan and thanks him for his service. And it's like, oh, I see. I see what's happened here. Klaus then, I guess, uncompelled Stefan. Essentially goes, you no longer have to follow me. I give you your freedom. And he's freed. And that's the end of Dear Footnote Husband Michael, at the very least here in The Vampire Diaries. Yeah. <laughs> he, the reason I wanted to discuss Michael is because, I mean, of course, him and Esther were married. But also the fact that he appears in present and then dies before Esther ever comes back physically. It's such a fascinating thing to me that they had the actors cast for the season, but never the twain did meet. Well, they meet, they meet in the flashbacks. And that's why I said in present. In flashback was a thousand years ago. <laughs> it's just crazy. They were both in Mystic Falls around the same time and never encounter each other. Even in the originals, for quite a while, they just keep missing each other. Star-crossed lovers <laughs> lost to the other side. Star-crossed <laughs> Star -crossed lovers who married and had children and died. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, that marks the end of Michael and the end of the episode. We're going to speed run a bunch of scenes now for the interim episodes between where Michael dies and where Esther shows up again. Um, just some relevant little things that I pulled out from like the in-between episodes. So, episode 10, The New Deal. One, Stefan has stolen Klaus's coffins as an act of revenge, and he has employed Bonnie to keep them hidden with magic. Bonnie has been getting witchy dreams about these coffins, and that's why she's been led to them. At the end of the episode, 
Stefan shows her that one of the coffins is magically sealed and he has not been able to get it open. The second thing is Klaus and his sire, Tyler, get Jeremy off of a vein and compel him to stand in front of a car. <laughs> Again, we're speedrunning these because the relevance of what's happening around them, not so much. It'll become apparent while we're listing these events. Um, Alaric shoves him out of the way, gets hit instead, and he dies with his Gilbert ring on. His Gilbert ring that allows him to come back to life from supernatural deaths. He does come back to life eventually, but something is off and he's still incredibly wounded. And so they take him to a hospital. After he's fixed up, they figure that the ring has a best before date on it, essentially. <laughs> it's like you can only use it for so long, maybe. And after a while, it stops working. The Gilbert ring, at least with Alaric, it seems that the ring might just have a bad effect on certain people. Maybe you're, you're either lucky or you're not. Because I, I think Bonnie says that all the dying coming back to life may have warped his psyche. Mm. But we do learn about an ancestor of the Gilbert family who owned the ring, who that also happened to. Who was definitely going through different things than we then find out Alaric was going through. So it seems like it might just be the ring itself sometimes. Suffice it to say, Jeremy, I assume, has died a similar... Well, no, Rick definitely has died more. Being friends with Damon means you just get your neck snapped sometimes. <laughs> so Rick has definitely died more times than Jeremy has, so yes. I guess that would explain why we haven't seen anything from Jeremy. Episode 12, Our Town. Bonnie receives more witchy dreams, in which she's informed that she needs to find her mother in order to carry out this plan of theirs with the coffins. She's not sure why. When they meet and talk with Bonnie's mother, Abby, they learn that she is the witch who desiccated Michael in a crypt where Catherine and Jeremy found him after he came to town looking for the doppelganger. Second event, Klaus finds where they're keeping the coffins and the spirits of a hundred witches bind him beyond the room using magic. He then threatens to kill all of their descendants, starting with Bonnie and her mother, after whom he's already sent a hybrid. The spirits relent and allow him in, and they reveal the coffins to him. But at this point, Bonnie's already given Damon a heads up. So he managed to get out one of the coffins, the one that was magically sealed. And then at the end of the episode, we find out he has also removed the dagger from Elijah, allowing him to awaken. He comes back in a really iconic scene at the end that my sisters quote all the time. So do I. <laughs> when he shows up and he rips the heart out of one of Nick's hybrids and says, So Niklaus, what did I miss? <laughs> Oh, God, Elijah's so cool. I was so happy to see Elijah back at that point with, with Klaus, like, continually escaping, being beaten by, like, a hair's breadth over and over. I was like, okay, Elijah's here, and the last time we saw him, you betrayed him. He's going to show you. Surely at this point, someone on your level is going to give you what for. Does he do that? Not really. Uh, but, wow. you know, that's Elijah's curse. Bringing Out the Dead, episode 13. Oh, I think we're back in now. Yes, I think we've done the speed run. Damon and Elijah meet because Damon has left a note in Elijah's jacket pocket before undaggering him. Damon asks Elijah if he knows who or what might be in the coffin that's been sealed with magic. Meanwhile, Stefan is taking Bonnie and her mother, Abby, to that secret Lockwood cave, the one that had all the etchings, where they've been keeping the coffins so that they can try and open it. In this cave... Bonnie tries to find the spell that they need by looking through her grimoire. Abby's just trying to get up to speed about all the carvings, and Bonnie tells her about the origin of vampirism. And later, while looking through the grimoire, they find that in order to unseal this coffin, 
they need two generations of their line, like a parent and a child. At this point, though, Abby does not have her magic, so they need her to unlock her powers so that they could open the coffin. In a very sort of emotional scene, they do manage to get Abby to use her magic, and they succeed, and the coffin is opened. I think it, like, bursts open dramatically. <laughs> yes, it pops a little bit, and they think they've, like, half done it, and Barney goes to, like, send a message to someone of the main crew to be like, I think we're making headway. And as she leaves that main cave, it then bursts open fully while Abby's, like, waiting and looking around. And then... That's the last we see of it. Cutting to Stefan and Damon, who are buying time for the Bennett witches to open the coffin, they are having this dinner with Elijah and Klaus to try and negotiate a truce. Well, they're saying they're trying to negotiate a truce. While they're speaking, Elijah and Klaus tell them about Tatia, who, again, they claim is the originator of the Petrova line, but we know that she's not the original Petrova. She couldn't possibly be the original Petrova because we know about Amara from Ketsia and Silas' time in ancient Greece, and she precedes Tatia by like a thousand years. So it's another situation of like original witch, original Petrova. It's like, these aren't real. Y'all are lying. <laughs> You're lying but to everyone, and I won't She's the Petrova it. used to make the original. It's, 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 it's stupid. It's but, stupid. Um, it's a stupid reason to call her the original <laughs> no, Petrova. No, no, no. That one, definitely something the writers did not see coming as something they'd contradict. But I, I do wonder why they are called Petrova doppelgangers, because I don't think Amara would have had a surname. And it wouldn't have been Petrova. I don't think Amara would have had a Slavic surname. Yeah, yeah she wouldn't have had a Slavic surname. And I don't, I don't even think Tatia would have had a Slavic surname, because assumedly she was Nordic, like everybody else who lived in that village, or at least, you know, part Nordic, part Native American. So I, I don't even think that Tatia's surname was Petrova. Probably she's just the ancestor of Catherine's paternal family, the right. Petrovs. And that's why they call her the, the original Petrova. That's fair enough. Where it's like from this side of time, we call her the original Petrova because she then, a couple centuries removes, originates the Petrova line. But speaking of Nordic surnames, I can't believe we got this far without talking about it. The name Michelson, right, which is often used uh, to yes. refer to this family, the Michelsons, which I, we've had this conversation and you've said probably in present day, they're like, yeah, you know, the Michelsons because we're all Michael's family. Esther is sometimes referred to, like, on wikis and in casting and on, like, all these, like, places where you would find the character's name. She's referred to as Esther Michelson, which is just simply incorrect by my understanding, at least, yes. of Nordic naming conventions. Michelson, pretty self-explanatory, means Michael's son. If you are Michael's male heir, you would then take on the patronym Michelson. Yes. Esther married Michael. She would not take the name Michaelson. She would have her own surname, which would be her father's name, and then Dotir at the end, because she would not be a father's son. She's a father's daughter, so she would be that name, Dotir. Similarly, Rebecca would not be Rebecca Michaelson. She would be Rebecca Michaels Dotir, which is something I wanted to throw out there because I just it, it's it's not that important. Because collectively, in 2012, obviously we were going to say the Michelsons, but like, I just, it, it just itches at me when I see their names listed and I'm like, that's not right. 
It just isn't. The four brothers were like, there is one girl among us. We're going to ignore her and just call ourselves the Michaelsons. <laughs> even though we all hate our dad. <laughs> yeah, even though we all hate our dad, we're just going to adopt his name real freely, real excitedly about even, it. Even though we hate him and we're actively hiding from him. So, the original Petrova, Tatia, they find out later, because Tatia is this woman that Elijah and Klaus were both in love with in a really hilarious parallel to Stefan and Damon being in love with the present Petrova doppelganger, um, Elena. But they later find out that Esther used Tatia's blood to complete the ritual that turned them into vampires. <sighs> later on, I think Esther says that it's just Elena's nature as a doppelganger that makes her blood so important in like spells and stuff it's like a, she describes it as a a useful resource but i feel like it makes more sense that her blood is only important because her ancestor doppelganger's blood was used to create vampires i feel like that should be the reason where it's like when a spell related to vampirism or hindering vampirism or undoing vampirism whatever these spells that they're doing that require double gang of blood that's what would be the connect there it it could be both because i think she she uses elena's blood twice in season three yes and the first time she uses it she explains that it's a it's a powerful binding agent in a witch's spell Given the nature of doppelgangers in this universe, of which it's possible there are only two kinds, I don't know. They never really. This is the thing, that. though, right? Because they <laughs> say doppelgangers, and we only ever meet two, and that's Elena and that's Stefan. Which I, it's. But given, <laughs> it's like given... surely if doppelgangers is such a big thing, and 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 we we'll get into it when we get to it. But like the way the travelers describe it, it's that the two of them are doppelgangers in this sort of mystical true love soulmate kind of way so it's not even that like doppelgangers are this natural occurrence that happens just throughout the world no matter how rare that may be it's that they were doppelgangers because they were separated they were two lovers who were separated by death and so their like lines were trying to reconnect throughout the ages and multiple points in history their doppelgangers have like almost met or have met and then separated, but like they've always been headed towards each other. That's the thing. I think that it is that doppelgangers in this world, whether Silas and Amara are the only two people to have doppelgangers who look like them, or whether there might be others who exist for separate reasons from the immortality spell, I think that it's that doppelgangers, no matter what they are or how many they are, they're always supernatural. They are a supernatural occurrence. It, it isn't natural for them to magically resemble one of their ancestors <laughs> down to like every, exactly every facet of their face. So I think because they are supernatural, their blood is magical. Remember, doppelgangers are supernatural enough that Gilbert rings won't work for them, and that if they kill someone wearing a Gilbert ring, that person will come back to life. Because it is a supernatural death. It's just, it, it just is strange that like, Esther describes it as this established thing that doppelganger blood is is great for witches spells but we only know two doppelgangers ever in the history of the universe well i haven't seen what well we know we know th th we know two doppelganger lines we do actually meet quite a handful of doppelgangers oh i see i see so through the course we of... meet elena and that dude thomas we meet stefan catherine and tatia so that's that's five doppelgangers between Silas and Amara. Sure. And given the pattern, the 500-year the pattern that seems to be established from Tatia to Catherine to Elena, we assume there might have been another doppelganger between Amara and Tatia. 
So maybe even before Esther had ever been born, people had encountered doppelgangers of these two, and that's how it had been established that their blood is magical. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I will defer to that ruling. During this dinner that the Salvatore brothers and the Michelson brothers are having, the negotiations do not go well. At some point, Elijah and Damon break off while Stefan and Klaus are speaking in the sort of central room. And when they come back, we find that Elijah has undaggered the rest of his siblings. He very dramatically shows like a serving platter of all three of the white oak ash daggers. It's actually, it's two. Is it two? It's two. I think Finn comes in holding his own dagger and stabs Klaus in the head. Oh, I thought he grabs it off the tray. Okay, two daggers on the serving platter. Finn, Cole, and Rebecca walk up from off screen behind Elijah and Klaus looks once again. Just These episodes are great, just like Klaus continually being caught off guard or stunned. Elijah tells the Salvatores that they're free to leave and then chaos ensues amongst the michaelsons or rather between the other michaelson siblings and klaus damon and stefan go back to find bonnie and abby and they discover them in the caves they've just bonnie had just left to go send a message that they're getting through to the coffin abby had just seen the coffin explode open the salvators come back and find them passed out on the ground where they were standing and the coffin itself is now empty Cut back to Rebecca, Elijah, Finn, and Cole informing Klaus that they are leaving him forever. They get into an argument, but that immediately ends as... (laughs) I forget who sees her first, but one of the siblings sees her walking in, and then we pan over to where the others are standing, and Esther has walked in. Old-timey Nordic dress that she died in, hair cascading to her shoulders, just looking very out of place with the rest of the scene but just looking stunning i i wrote you when a bad bitch walks in the room and everyone goes silent (laughs) (laughs) she walks past all her children heading straight for klaus and klaus the shame on klaus's face he can't even bear to look at her and she tells him look at me she asks him what do you think i came back for and he says to kill me and she tells him that she's here to forgive him and that their family must be a family once again i think it's interesting the response he has to seeing his father versus the response he has seeing his mother his father who granted he's been running for for centuries so like no huge surprise when he eventually catches up but like he's only a little rattled when michael like gains the upper hand on him when his mom shows up he's like completely broken down um so that's just a very fascinating like thing but yeah the first physical presence of esther in the modern day played by alice evans phenomenal actress dangerous liaisons following episode elena's in the gilbert house talking to a bunch of the other characters of like what the hell happens now because whatever's in the coffin is gone and that's what we're counting on to take care of klaus The doorbell rings, and Elena goes to answer it, but no one's there. But she does find an invitation that is addressed to her in beautiful script uh, that says to join the Michelson family for dancing, drinks, and celebration. Because that never happens in this town. (laughs) Oh, wow, a party. I appreciate that it is neither a founder's party or a school event. Finally, 
like someone else is hosting god damn it someone else that's is taking the, over the opportunity that's what the invitation should have said it should have been like are you tired of school events hosted at the mystic grill the one <laughs> hotspot in town are you tired of all the parades honoring ancestors most of whom fought for the confederacy in the civil war then join the michaelsons for an evening of dancing and drinking in their palatial mansion that seems to spring up out of nowhere in this town wherever we need somebody to have an enormous space just free-floating mansions in this one-horse town maybe this is why pearl was so interested in the real estate like there are some houses in this town and it's you know it's the 2010s the housing market is it's we're coming off a financial crash i'm not gonna give up like a proper three-story you know There's a note on the back of the invitation from Esther that says, Elena, I think it's time we finally meet. Which, something about the season and like really powerful entities all wanting to speak to Elena. I know it's her nature as a main character and as like the doppelganger or whatever. But it's always fun to me to think, damn, this 17, 18 year old girl and all these like immortals really want her ear. Must be a lot of fun. Rebecca and Cole back at Klaus's home are preparing for the dance. Klaus comes home. He's upset because at some point in between, Rebecca tried to attack Elena. Oh, yes, because during the plan to kill uh, Michael, Elena surmises that Rebecca is not going to actually be able to go through with it because for as much as Klaus has betrayed her, he's still her brother and they're very close. I think it's after a conversation she has with Bonnie, who's having issues with Jeremy. And Elena says that Bonnie can speak to her about it if she'd like to. And Bonnie says that not really because at the end of the day, Jeremy is your family. You can be upset at him for a little bit for like something he's done. But at the end of the day, he will always be a brother. Whereas for me, it's like this is some devastating shit that he's done. And from that, she goes, well, damn, I don't know if we can fully trust Rebecca to see this plan to the end. And so halfway through the episode, when Rebecca in Elena's defense, very clearly demonstrates that she's not going to be able to go through with this plan. Elena uses one of the white oak daggers and daggers Rebecca in the back. Klaus is upset that Rebecca went after Elena. Esther intervenes in their fight and says he needs to go easy on them. She's had a thousand years on the other side to make peace with what he's done. They're allowed to have whatever reactions they're having, essentially, because they've been in coffins for however long. Which, it's hilarious that he then claims that he doesn't understand why Esther is so forgiving of him after what he did to her. But after what he did to all of his siblings, he expects them to be appropriately, like, genial and deferential to him just because they're in his house. It's like, you kept me in a coffin for centuries what was the reason probably that i told you your shirt looked bad like I, it's, it's just... in the case of cole and rebecca he has daggered them a few times the originals spin-off series will show that they've they've been daggered quite a lot so maybe he was like Ugh, are we are we gonna do this thing where you're angry at me for like a decade or so and then you get for over it stealing like, tons of time from my life yeah just small change i know rebecca says at one point because elena says he, he daggered you and stole, like, decades from your life. How can you still be, like, all buddy-buddy with him? And she says, because he's my brother and I'm immortal, am I supposed to spend the rest of eternity alone? Which is a very sad reason for the expectation to be, I'm just going to get over you taking so much from me. 
the original siblings have a very codependent relationship when it comes to how they engage with each other. Like, they will constantly get upset and swear that they will never speak to someone again and it's over and they are dead to each other. But ultimately, Five they always come later. back. And I... <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's because I think it's because of the immortality aspect. It's because as far as they know, they are the only people in the world who are guaranteed to be alive as long as each other. And they are deathly scared of being alone. Like each of them has this 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 different reason for it. Like Rebecca, it's because, you know, she's she was a young woman, maybe a teenage girl, it's it's vague, when she got turned and she lost her mother. Cole is because he he always felt like he was excluded from the main three's little forever and always, always and forever mm. and klaus is because he's the half sibling and the one their father always bullied while the rest of them were able to just like exist freely and he's the hybrid so that's that's probably why as toxic as their family is they they do and elijah always who's always other. trying to keep everyone together elijah who feels responsible as the quote eldest while finn is daggered for 900 years <laughs> He's always trying to keep, like, the goodness of his siblings intact. Trying and failing. I guess also, like, I come from a number of siblings, so every time they get into it, I feel a little bit of that, like, childhood. I won't say trauma. I do have healthy relationships with most of my siblings. You don't you don't dagger them for centuries on end? You know you what? Just... <laughs> now that I think about it. Who, who among us hasn't who, stuck his brother in a box who among us hasn't for like a century or nine centuries? siblings when they pissed us off. Maybe I kind of get it. <laughs> the party is hosted by the Michelsons. They have their big soiree. Everyone from town, who's everyone in town, uh, gets invited. There's some like stupid bickering about whether Elena should or shouldn't go. Elena ends up going. She goes to find Esther. Elijah intercepts her, suspicious about his mother, saying that she's forgiven Klaus a little too quickly for what he expected. Um, so he's trying to understand, like, what is her endgame? And so Elena promises to tell him what Esther tells her in this private meeting that they're going to have. She goes upstairs. She goes to a room where Finn is there. Esther is preparing incense. Elena knocks. Esther excuses Finn and then explains that the incense that she's burning is sage. And she spelled it so that no one will hear them. This is one of my favorite witch things that happens in the show. My sister and I quoted it for years. We will always say, the sage burns, child. You may speak freely. I don't know if she ever <laughs> says that exactly, but it was such a fun quote that it like stuck in our heads. But anyway, Elena asks how it is that Esther is still like alive in here. Ayana, her dear friend and mentor, preserved her body. And Bonnie and Abby, her mother, could open the coffin because they're Ayana's descendants. As we know, every black witch you encounter in this show is related. <laughs> Except for the Martins. <laughs> Except for the Martins who are men. There's a thesis I've written about this. It's very important that they're men, that they're not related to the Bennets. Esther says that there's a way to be rid of the original vampires. Elena does say, you're going to help us kill Klaus, aren't you? And then Esther says, one thing at a time, Elena. For now, I simply need your help. She explains to Elena that they turned their children into vampires to protect them from the werewolves. But like Michael said, when they turned and began feeding on people, that was very much not their intent. Elena asks again, how do we kill Klaus? And Esther says it'll take time and Elena's help. The reason she's thrown this party, this ball, is to gather all of the original children together. She then asks Elena for a drop of her blood 
puts it into this witchy woo that she's busy with. She says that Elijah will be the most suspicious, but if they all drink from the toast that they're preparing, all the siblings will become linked so that if one original dies, they all die. She then says, I love my family, but they are an abomination. I betrayed nature when I created them, so it's my duty to kill them. Real fun revelation now, Esther, a thousand years later. Would have been great when you listened to Ayana when she said this <laughs> shit, when you tried it. Elena leaves, sort of having been wished along in this plan, she doesn't necessarily like... I don't want to say she doesn't consent to it because she does give over the drop of blood, but she does give over the drop of blood before Esther tells her that she's linking all of them. She went in thinking, okay, we're going to take Klaus down because that's what they were promised by Mason Lockwood bringing Damon to the caves. Then Esther saying, well, I've got to kill all of them. And Elena's like, well, damn, I kind of like Elijah. Like I can give or take all the others, but he's been largely chill. Also, I don't know if I can take it on my conscience just murdering all five of them when we just want the one out of our lives. Because this is midway through season three before everyone decides that they don't give a f- about anyone outside of Elena's circle. <laughs> we, we'll get there by the end of season three. That's when it's like, you know what? If you didn't go to Mystic Falls High School or you don't live at the Salvatore boarding house, we well, do not too care. too damn bad. <laughs> She then encounters Elijah after she leaves Esther's room, a little bit, like, winded and, like, stunned after this conversation of, like, well, damn, I just helped sign all of their death wishes. And Elijah asks if his mother has really forgiven Klaus, and she assures him that she has. Elijah makes a speech. He, like, calls for everyone's attention. All the Michaelsons are standing on the stairs, and he makes a speech. And then everyone drinks from the toast, and we cut to all the originals taking a drink. Everyone's taking a drink. Later, there's a fight between Rebecca and Cole. I think Rebecca has, because she's been forbidden from going after Elena, she tries to bring Cole into a plan to attack Matt. Matt, who she's invited to this ball. After spending like two seconds with Matt, like anyone who spent two seconds with Matt, you learn he's kind of a really nice guy and hasn't really done anything to anyone. And she's like, well, damn, he's kind of a sweetie. Now I don't want him dead. Cole tries to do it anyway. <laughs> and then they, Rebecca and Cole end up in a fight. And I, th- I can't remember if Esther's the one who, who intercedes or if Elijah's the one who intercedes. But they split them up. Esther makes some sort of mom-like declaration of like, you damn kids, I wish you would work with me. I do so much for this family. After they're gone, Elijah assures Esther that he will deal with them. And she caresses his cheek and she says she wishes the others were more like him. Oh, mom. It's it's a very sweet moment. It's There are bits and pieces where like, I'll say this and then I'll get into it. But Finn sort of comes out of the shadows in his mommy's room, as he always is, and asks if Esther's not losing her will. She says, no, she just... Elijah's so moral, sometimes she wonders. But then she says that... She asks Finn if he understands what this binding spell means. And Finn says he knows that when it's time, he has to be the one to die. Because Finn is the sacrificial lamb, essentially. He's the one who will be killed so that all the other siblings will die. Esther then writes her children's names on a piece of paper. She slices Finn's hand, lets the blood run over the paper to each of the names of her children. And she begins to cast a spell 
completing the link between them. The spell that she casts, the language that she's speaking, is essentially the same language that Barney and company, all the witches that we've met in modern times, use. Which I thought about and I've been like, okay, if Barney's a descendant of Ayana, then that kind of makes sense because Ayana taught Esther everything she knows. We know that there's this Norse variety of magic that Esther specifically either didn't learn or stopped learning because she then got married to a Viking and like abandoned the ways of her family. And so we assume that the magic that she performs, now that she was taught by Ayana and is channeling the Bennets in order to continue to like exist in present day, she has to be using the same kind of magic and therefore use the same language. The episode ends with the siblings linked and primed for death. Following episode, All My Children, uh, iconic soapy of a prior era. Um, <laughs> Elijah, this is what I was thinking about. Elijah goes into Esther's quarters while she's not there and spots the burned sage that she had used to um, do her, what they call a privacy spell. He brings his concerns to Rebecca. Uh, she rebuffs them, insisting that their mother loves them and is here to make their family whole. And so he shouldn't seek trouble where there isn't any. And it's this constant about Rebecca that, like, as soon as there's an ounce of stability, she's very invested in, like, not rocking the boat. And it has to be of the fact that, like, like you said, she was turned at a very young age. She has this propensity for family. And she's been on the run for so long in her life that, like, she's always seeking that that sense of, like, hey, we're here and we're doing it and we're fine. And the moment something threatens that, she's like, Horse blinders on. Nothing's going on. It's this interesting and unfortunate quality to her. Elsewhere, Barney, Caroline, and Elena are trying to replicate the same privacy spell, the one that Elena saw happen, because pretty useful spell to have. Unfortunately, they're not very successful in doing that. Barney reveals to them that Esther had approached her and her mother for help to perform the sacrifice that will kill the originals. Um, she mentions that they felt weird about declining that meeting because, one, we're not going to go against the original witch, and two, she's channeling our family. Which is something that, like, she says Esther is drawing on the entire Bennett bloodline. I'm sure the ones on the other side are giving of that freely. Yes. Because they've been very clear they want nature to be in balance again and therefore rid of the originals. Mm -hmm. But also, one... It once again feels like these like Nordic people sort of showing up and taking what they want. And two, it's just another in a long line of people using the Bennets. I, it's just another to add to the pile of, yeah, we need a Bennet to do this. Bennet Blood will do this. We need a Bennet Witch to, to this and that. It's such a constant with them, and it sucks. Truly, the Bennets are everyone's favorite tool in this world, and that's probably why Bonnie is written as being descended from, like, every significant brown-skinned witch that the show uses in its established history. Like, any time it's like, oh, Bonnie, this is why you're important to the plot, because your ancestor was involved in yet another of these immortal shenanigans. Also, Esther Esther says that she's, she's drawing on the power of every Bennett witch living and dead, which I guess means she's also connected to living Bennett witches, like Lucy, wherever the heck she is right now. Assumedly. I know she referenced that Abby and Bonnie are her, like, connection or conduit to this Bennett line, which is why she speaks to them specifically. But, like, yes, Lucy would be another one 
who else is there's no other Bennett's like ancillary Bennett's that are just around right of their of Bonnie's generation no I mean unless she's just doing like a direct line through Bonnie and Abby through and them. all or, yeah like all their ancestors yeah because like, Lucy's like, like a cousin twice removed or something yeah. if I remember properly <laughs> yes Lucy Lucy's quite <laughs> she's like no, I don't want none of that mess I'm getting out and then she died anyway off screen no less <laughs> Oh, bless. After promising she would come back. Elijah comes to visit Elena and asks if she will accompany him on a walk to the woods that correlate with the werewolves go far back. He's like explaining what life was in the new world before they were turned into vampires. He brings up that... He says something really like... It feels very cutting. I think he says there's something about Elena that he prizes or whatever. And so he was disappointed to find that she's lying to him. Essentially, he knows that she was lying to him at the party. Elena tries to feign innocence. But he points out that her heartbeat jumps every time she lies and it did the same thing (laughs) when she lied to him at the party which is a thing that people up till that point were not using enough i know it happens one other instance but the fact that the vampires have super hearing and aren't always using that to determine veracity of truth and then it becomes even cooler when it's like a either someone believes something to be true and that's why their heartbeat remains steady or b someone is so good at cheating almost like how you would cheat a polygraph Someone yeah. can cheat a vampire by maintaining their heartbeat at a steady rhythm. There's so many cool avenues for that. Not, not that I've ever cheated a polygraph. I, I mean, I mean. Uh-huh. <laughs> Go on. There's a, there is a scene in season two uh, where Caroline li- lies to Jules, the female werewolf from Mason's Pack, and Jules tells her that she knows she's lying. And Caroline says, oh, is that one of your werewolf tricks? And Jules says, it is actually. So it's possible that she could hear Caroline's heartbeat. Since I doubt Caroline as a vampire would be giving off any like pheromones related to being stressed or dishonest. And the vampires in this world do have heartbeats. I guess you use it enough, it starts to like sully intrigue in the story. So, you know, eh, I think it's a really cool trick. Elena not talking her way out of any situation because Elijah's already clocked her. She confesses that, yes, she did lie about Esther. Esther's planning to kill all of them. She feels hella guilty because that wasn't her plan at all. She was just looking to get rid of Klaus. And now she's like stuck in this whole linking plan. And she says she'll do anything to help. And Elijah says, For as much time as I've spent on this earth, the lesson I've learned is that you should be careful what you wish for. And then he (laughs) kicks the ground open and drops Elena into this cavern where Rebecca is waiting to entrap her and keep her until whatever plan they've got cooked up. And Elena has been kidnapped. Oh, we love to see it. Everybody take, take another a shot. shot. <laughs> <laughs> Elsewhere, Esther's meeting up with the Bennets and preparing to cast this spell that's going to get rid of the originals. She explains that she's going to be using the full moon as a celestial event to draw power. Very often when witches are doing like larger magical feats in the show, they will do it at the time of a celestial event so that they can harness power. This is why the comet was important in the first season of The Vampire Diaries. That is the event that Damon was looking to use to open the tomb. Well, looking to force Bonnie to, to open the tomb. She's harnessing the full moon to draw power. 
drawing a salt pentagram, salt being a symbol of the earth, and she's lit five torches, one for each of her vampire children. To be fair, it is a pentagram, so it already has five points. I just a lucky coincidence for Esther, I suppose, that she only had five vampire kids. <laughs> um, if she had four kids, she was just going to draw an X on the ground leave space empty but as the witch who made them into vampires she's the one to cast a spell to unmake them and then with a dagger to finn's chest they will all die abby fairly enough asks finn if he's okay with this and he declares that he sees it as a gift saying his mother has released him from an eternity of shame this is the point where very similar to the moment she has with elijah after the party there's this look on her face alice evans does a lot of face work with this character but like there's there's moments where it comes through that she's definitely quite guilty about one having to kill all the children but also two having to use her very clearly doting son for this sort of playing up the opinions he already has about himself and his siblings as vampires as this like plague on the land oh my just popped into my head as i said plague he's the only living sibling who was there when they ran from the plague, right? Yep. Because Elijah's born during the the travel, we've surmised now based on the timing, and then Colin, Rebecca, and Klaus are born afterwards. So he's the only one who's actually experienced the plague that decimated their lands. So that might be what's informing, like, the opinion he has on, like, the vampire species. I think that's a very, like... Interesting thing I've not thought about once because I rarely think about Finn. So, well, I mean, the, <laughs> the, the plague was, was a lie on Esther's part. No, of course, of course. But, I mean, there was still a plague. Was there? Uh, yeah, there probably was. I guess she wouldn't have been able to lie about a plague. Yes, you are absolutely right. It's definitely made up that the child died of plague because, I, you know, I mean, we won't get into it. But, like, I can't imagine she said the child died of plague and then Michael looked around and saw a bunch of healthy people <laughs> and went, yeah, no, makes sense. That tracks. <laughs> he was like, why my child? Exactly. <laughs> Why this very localized plague in the Michelson house. So, assuming the plague happened, Finn's the only one of the Michelson kids who actually experienced the plague itself and the fallout of the plague, the destruction and the toll and the the body count. So it's it's not unreasonable to surmise that like his hatred of vampires and the very real threat vampires are to human life is maybe a connection to that. But all this to say. Esther playing up this this perception that he has so that he is in fact willing to sacrifice himself to rid the world of the originals you see the guilt come through in this scene and in that scene earlier with Elijah and I think that's fascinating I think compared to Michael as I said earlier she feels the remorse of this and understands in a very pure way that like this is an undoing of a terror that we've unleashed upon the world and i'm saddened by it but it has to be done whereas michael's like that damn bastard child will <laughs> die tonight if i have anything to do about it yes and i think that's the difference between them <laughs> damon stefan alaric naturally notice immediately that elena's gone they feel the sense in the the disturbance <laughs> in the vampire diaries force they're like Elena's been gone for more than 10 minutes. I think she's been kidnapped. They feel the, the vacuum that she leaves in the, in the <laughs> air when she's not there. 
the main character-sized hole she's left in the script. And they're like, mm-mm, something's up here. They call up Caroline. They're like, dude, your bestie's missing. We need to see what's going on. She, in their plan, agrees to distract Klaus while they try to figure out what's going on. Klaus, who is at the time with Cole at the Mystic Grill, because even as an immortal vampire, in Mystic Falls, there's only so much to do. <laughs> as she's busy distracting Klaus outside, the others... Oh, what was their intent in stabbing Cole? Their intent in stabbing Cole was to, I think, get Rebecca, and I guess by extension, Elijah, neutralized so that they could save elena oh i see so they weren't just being stupid because i i watched it happen granted i was rewatching these episodes and doing like other things but i saw it happen <laughs> and i was like this is really dumb you guys know they're all linked this is gonna give you away but i guess if they had an intent oh i guess elijah must have informed them yes elijah must have been like yeah i've got elena and rebecca is willing to do whatever needs to be done if you don't take care of this linking nonsense right now I suppose they didn't know that that Klaus being immune to the dagger would feel it taking effect. I guess they were also expecting him to drop the same way. What a huge reach on their parts. There's a lot of assumptions about interacting magic. Maybe they were expecting that even if the neutralization didn't affect him, he wouldn't feel anything. Because when Cole is daggered and all the others drop, Klaus feels like something in his chest. And that's when he's like, something's going on. Caroline's distracting me. What have you done? As they do dagger Cole, who is harassing Meredith at the time, so I don't feel too bad about that. They dagger Cole, and all the other originals go down. Klaus is perfectly fine, but he clutches his chest as he's speaking to Caroline and is like, what's going on? What did you do? And Caroline, who I think generally isn't aware of the other half of the plan, they were just like, go distract Klaus. And she's like, I didn't do anything. Stop being weird. And then he runs off because he's figured out that something's going on with his siblings, surely. When they dagger Cole and everyone goes down, Esther goes something's wrong no it's too soon stefan and damon go to where abby and bonnie are and in the car ride there they've sort of reached the understanding that like esther is channeling the bennett line they've been told by god whoever's told them at this point there's a lot going on in this episode and so they need to cut off that connection so that Esther cannot proceed or succeed at the spell. By cut off, they interpret as, well, I guess we've got to kill one of them, which no one is happy about. Which is not saying much, that's like the bare minimum you could feel about the people who rescue you out of every damn problem you have. But anyways, they like flip a coin to decide who's going to do the thing that they're planning to do. Stefan goes after Bonnie, Damon goes to Bonnie's mother, Abby, force feeds her vampire blood, and snaps her neck. As we know from, I think, the prior episode in the conversation with Rebecca and Elena, and also from someone who's narrating it in the episode, you cannot be a witch and a vampire at the same time. So once Abby dies, the link is severed. Esther's spell slows down, and that's when Klaus and Elijah, and I think Cole is also with them, come to where Esther is with finn in the circle oh were they did they not arrive before then at this point the episode is a jumble in my head i think the three original brothers uh elijah cole and klaus show up to where esther is with finn um now they they're, they're aware of what's going on they know that she's linked them and that she's trying to kill them this is after cole has been daggered and then klaus has like removed the dagger so now he's conscious again and everyone's fine finn gets like you know defensive like mama's boy and esther's like no it's fine they can't enter the circle so there's nothing they can do 
and she 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 does have the honest conversation with them that she's like yes i'm i'm going to kill you all and uh you know they the brothers trade some barbs with finn like i think cole calls him pathetic and i think elijah is elijah's genuinely hurt that their mother was lying to them but she points out like no 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 no. you guys have been a plague like even you elijah I've like watched we, we call, you we call for you the moral years. ones <laughs> Yes, and I like I like that she does that because the show itself often calls Elijah the moral one. But if you watch the things Elijah does, especially in the spin-off show, it's like you aren't that great. He hey, enters like the Vampire Diaries beheading two people. No, there's no question you know, of the fact that Elijah is <laughs> capable of the same barbarism that his siblings are. He's just the one who is less likely to resort to it. He will still definitely do it if necessary. And so, yes, he in the same manner has torn his way through humanity across the centuries. I think Esther, Esther compliments Finn after Cole calls him pathetic and says that um, no, Finn knows virtues that the rest of them will never know, basically saying that he's the real good boy, which, <laughs> you know, at least it, in as much as as he appears in the vampire diaries i'll say is true well we'll leave it there and say that's true for the vampire diaries. we'll put a pin in him <laughs> right there at this point that's when the salvators go to the bennett's stefan asks bonnie to stop with the magic bonnie explains that she can't she doesn't have control because of the nature of how esther is channeling their whole bloodline and that's when damon does what damon does once that occurs the spell slows and stops Esther realizes that it's not going to work out. I think she screams, sisters, do not abandon me in this hour of need. <laughs> but it's not like the sisters chose Esther. <laughs> There's people who have intervened. And then she and Finn, I think the torches roar up in flame and then disappear and switch off. And Esther and Finn are gone. Yeah, I assume Finn grabbed her and vamp sped away while the flames Oh, I assume roaring. she magicked them away. That is a more likely occurrence that happened. <laughs> I do. I don't know He's why super strong and super fast. Like he he picked his mom up and like ran off into the night. I don't know why I went. Yeah, the witch who's barely holding on to life, who's just <laughs> been cut off from her magic source, did something no witch has ever done in this story and teleported them away. <laughs> Following this failed plan to be rid of the original children, Esther and Finn are gone. The remaining siblings seemingly torn apart by this understandably upsetting turn of events kind of split up cole dips elijah i believe also dips rebecca stays behind and tells klaus that uh yeah everybody's gone so it's just us and at the end of the episode is when she shows klaus all the pictures that elena had brought her of the etchings in the cave no 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 these are new pictures that she's taken because she had a phone with her uh, down in the caves while she was harassing Elena and keeping her kidnapped. <laughs> she has deduced from the etchings on the caves that there is a white oak tree that was written about centuries after they'd fled America, which means it is possible there is still a white oak tree that is alive to this day that is not the one that they burned down. And so something is still around that can kill them. And that's the end of that episode. We do not see Esther for a little bit after that, so we're gonna go back into speedrun mode. Okay, episode 16, called 1912. Alaric is arrested and investigated for a string of murders that have sort of been happening in the last couple of episodes in the background. People have been attacked and killed by stake, people who are not vampires. A number of other characters separately figure out that 
it might be because of the Gilbert ring that Alaric is wearing and the fact that he has come back several times from the dead. I believe the Salvators figure it out separately. I believe Meredith Fowl, who's just been stalking Rick while they're in, like, forming a romance, figures it out separately. And I think Elena, who's reading the Gilbert journals, figures it out separately. So it's the wild choice that everyone's really organically coming up to this knowledge. Episode 17, Break On Through. Alaric's condition worsens. And he begins to take on a darker persona, one that seems intent on ridding the town council of members who are allied or sympathetic to vampires. This persona persists even when he's taken the Gilbert Ring off. Uh, Bonnie's mother, Abby, who is currently going through her transition as a vampire, or has gone through her transition and is now a vampire, likens the situation to witches who have become obsessed with dark magic and says that the ring has been slowly chipping away at his psyche. She sends Bonnie back to Mystic Falls with a concoction of herbs that Alaric needs to take uh, on a daily basis to keep that darkness at bay. Elsewhere in the episode, Damon and character we've only seen, I think she shows up in the episode prior to this, Sage. She's this 900-year-old vampire who was his mentor slash bed buddy, uh, in the early 1900s. The two of them have hatched a plan, well, Damon's hatched a plan and Rope saged into it, to seduce Rebecca and then get into her head after some post-coital bliss to figure out why she's been sort of snooping around town and amidst the town council. Sage learns and tells Damon that Rebecca's been looking for when the white oak that was still around after they left was cut down or used. Damon looks through the records that his family kept at the time of founding and since, because uh, apparently the Salvators were responsible for milling at some point or other. Sage, having gained the information, then double-crosses Damon and tells Rebecca where the last white oak is. Rebecca destroys it, of course. Damon arrives as they're burning the wood pieces. Sage has double-crossed Damon because Damon has neglected to tell her that Klaus's death will mean the death of all the originals, including her sleeping beauty, Finn. Damon, however, still learns that the town sign... Is it the town sign? What sign was it? Is it not the town sign? I thought it was the Wickery Bridge sign. You're absolutely right! It's the Wickery Bridge sign. Basically, we've still got a shot with our white oak. Episode 18, The Murder of One. The Mystic Gang... <laughs> Why did I write that? <laughs> Is that what they're called? I've apparently decided to start calling them the Mystic Gang. I, th I think they are called the Mystic Gang or the Mystic Falls Gang. Are they really? I've never seen... I thought similar to like the Scoobies or whatever with Buffy. I thought they might have a name. See, the Scoobies is a name used in-universe and by the fans of Buffy. I think Mystic Falls Gang is something that, like, the Vampire Diaries fans used to use in, like, the 2010s. Oh, uh, okay. As you know, I I was never in any fandom space basically until, like, a year ago when I started reading comics, so I would not have known that. But <laughs> the Mystic Gang <laughs> um, has made 12 stakes from this white oak sign that Damon found. And they've hatched a plan to catch at least one original, because that's all they need. Because you kill one, you kill them all. Klaus, however, at some point, kidnaps Bonnie and sends Cole after Jeremy as leverage so that she can do a spell to unlink him and his siblings. Stefan, Elena, and Matt later manage to kill Finn while he's on a date with Sage at the Grill, which seems like a personal target i feel like the man's been 
900 years the man's been out. He goes on one date with a woman who he thought abandoned him. He's immediately executed. Truly I don't think we I don't think we we think that Sage abandoned him. I think it's very clear she's been waiting for him all this time. No, yeah, I said but, he um, believes abandoned him. He says as much in the episode, I thought after 900 years you would have moved on without me. And she said, well, I've, you know, had dalliances, but I've never stop loving you i see i mean hey them killing finn he he was the one who wanted to die so yeah <laughs> but like at this point when now he may have a reason to want to go on living it's like damn dude as he decides <laughs> that actually i'd like to stay alive he's killed <laughs> stefan elena and matt through a concerted effort managed to stake finn they use like a crossbow with the stake it's a really cool scene and kill him dead but not before Bonnie has managed to complete the spell to unlink him and his siblings. So Finn killed for naught, only one of the originals to die. And because it's TV and it's dramatic, I think he dies as Bonnie's finishing the unlinking spell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like within a couple minutes and it's like, damn, <laughs> if y'all had gone a little bit quicker, y'all might have managed to do it. Later, Sage comes to the Salvatore house to get revenge. She finds Elena, Caroline, and Stefan there. I think they're like mid-celebration, thinking they're rid of the originals. Seems premature. I feel like you should have done some due diligence there, but that's just me. In the middle of beating Stefan up, she and uh, her lackey that she's brought along, Troy, bleed, wither up, and die. And the three of them, Elena, Caroline, Stefan, very quickly figure out that because... They died suddenly, and within like an hour of Finn dying, Finn, who is the one that turned Sage, and Sage, who's the one that assumedly turned Troy, they figure out that killing an original means every vampire down their bloodline will also die, which is a very important detail for the rest of the season, but also a season of the originals. Yes. Watch the originals. It's so good. Later on, Stefan goes to Klaus's uh, mansion, because Damon's gotten himself kidnapped somehow. I can't remember what happens, but Rebecca gets a hold of him and like bleeds him dry and tortures him. Stefan goes to Klaus's mansion and offers eight of the stakes to Klaus, telling him that these are all the stakes that we've made. Please give me Damon back. And they've kept three because there were 12 in total. One was used to kill Finn. He's giving back eight. So three are being kept by the Mystic Gang. Their hope is to kill all the originals except the one who sired their bloodline, so that the vampires that they know and love will not die as a result. That's where the selfishness solidifies itself. (laughs) (laughs) To their credit, I don't know if it's to their credit, maybe it paints them in a worse light. They say we're saving all the vampires we know, they don't discuss that we're killing all the vampires we don't know. I, I, I remember the scene because it was so iconic as they figure out what's happened with Finn and then Sage and Troy. Elena and Caroline realize that, oh, you're saying that when an original dies, every single vampire in their line dies too? Because then that would mean mm-hmm. that if we kill all of the originals, then all of you guys will die because you're all vampires. So they're aware that the death <laughs> of an original means every vampire from their line is dead. It's only later on when... Stefan has left and Caroline asks Elena, oh, where's Stefan gone? And then she's like, oh, he's trading the stakes for Damon. Um, he's held on to three, one for each original once we figure out who to save. And it's like, oh, you're just going to kill the three that you guys don't need to survive. 
even though you know there are some innocent people out there who are vampires. But what I'm saying is they don't say that. It doesn't seem like they're making a malicious choice, but also it's like it might paint it worse that we're trying to pretend that's not the choice that you're making. Because for as much as you've decided, yeah, so we can keep everyone alive, the implied result is that you are effectively genociding a whole oh, yes. like, population of people. Actually, <laughs> I, I missed the line. I missed the line. What Elena says is, if we kill the originals, all of you will die. And then the final thing she says is, the entire vampire species would just be dead. So they know what they're doing. They know exactly what they're doing. Yeah, you're right. They're like, genocide? Cool. So long as it's not our inner circle. We keep our circle small, and that's how we survive in this world. They were like, hey, every everybody who we care about who isn't Stefan and Damon was turned by Damon's blood. So it's it's really just Catherine's vampire descendants that we need to keep alive. <laughs> everybody else doesn't matter. And it's only later on that Caroline is like, oh, wait, Tyler was is a hybrid made by Klaus. So we can't just kill Klaus. It's such a funny moment where they're like, not because it would destroy a whole line of people. We're fine killing Klaus in that respect. Oh, no, Tyler. We like Tyler, though. <laughs> oh, what a shame. Well, I guess Klaus lives if that's the case. Because Damon doesn't care about Tyler. Damon is like, Tyler is still a character on this show? I hadn't noticed. <laughs> Kill him. I don't care. <laughs> Damon is like, when lost did we did we share a scene with Tyler? I don't even remember. Tyler who? Smallwood? I know. Who's that guy? <laughs> that was a book reference for those of you who don't know. I was going to say, like, two people are going to get that. <laughs> They're keeping three stakes for this intent. He hands over the eight. Klaus doesn't seem willing to, like, renege on this deal. Stefan then loses another stake. <laughs> One of the three that they've held on to trying to attack Klaus after they compel Damon to confess the true number of stakes. At this stage, they've been drinking Vervain. They've been building up a tolerance to Vervain so yes. that they can't be compelled by the originals. But... Rebecca has bled the Ravain from his system so he can be compelled. Damon, that is. So Klaus is like, oh, so you've kept a couple more. And Stefan's like, well, I've got to try and kill you now. And Klaus is like, I'm 10 times your age. This is such a dumb plan. <laughs> so he takes the one more and is like, well, great. Now you only have to give me two more. And we're sorted. Rebecca is the one to just like hand Damon back to him and is like, I've had my fun. I, I, it's whatever. Because I think Rebecca was just looking to get revenge for Damon, uh, uh seducing her, yeah. So, of the two stakes that they now have left, one of them has been, uh, left to Rick to hide away in his home, or rather in the Gilbert home. Damon comes to Rick and say, well, we need it now because we just lost our leverage. Rick goes and says, yeah, I've put it right here, and moves some books aside, and is like, it was right here. And then they start, like, struggling to search, and they're like, what the heck? I put it right here. It becomes apparent that his alter ego, assumedly this alter ego who has been taking over and killing people in the times that he's lost time, has taken the White Oak Stake, a tool with which to rid the world of a large number of vampires, and hidden it somewhere they don't know. Heart of Darkness, episode 19. Elena and Damon are on a road trip to Denver, where Jeremy has been sent off to. They compelled him to leave for his safety amidst the original drama. Their plan is to use his medium powers to contact Rose, um, who, as the vampire furthest back in their bloodline that they know, they hope uh, she can tell them which original they're sired by. Back in Mystic Falls, Stefan is on guard over Rick while they wait for his alter ego to appear. 
so that they can retrieve this missing white oak stake. Klaus shows up unannounced, has already found stake number 11 in the house, just kind of rocks up and is like, well, thanks, now you just owe me one. And <laughs> Stefan tells him the about the whole Cyaline situation. Klaus is like, oh, cool, I'm just going to kill Rick. And Stefan's like, well, you can't do that, otherwise we won't know where the last stake is. And they, it, Stefan tells him that we need this alter ego to tell us where it is. And Klaus is like, okay, cool, let me just speed up the process of knocking him out. Snaps his neck, kills him, and then leaves. <laughs> Back at Klaus's mansion, Rebecca returns home and finds Esther there waiting for her, which is the first we've seen of her since the failed spell. Esther explains that her body is weakened now because Abby has died in her becoming a vampire. And the power that she's drawing from the Bennett line has been essentially severed. They have this, like, it, it feels very much like a last, a last words, even though you don't know what's about to happen, in which Rebecca's like, how could you kill your own children? And Esther's like, I've been looking over you all for a thousand years. I've always been here. But no one should live that long. And that's why they all need to go. And she grabs Rebecca's hands and starts to wobble and fall. And I think she says, I'm so sorry. And then topples to the ground. Rebecca sort of clutching her as she goes to her knees as well. And Esther falls dead. Or so we think at the time. And because of future knowledge that we have, I think the I'm so sorry hits different, right? Knowing how the episode ends. Because you read it as an I'm so sorry of like for everything I've done, but it's an I'm so sorry for what I'm about to do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> back with the Denver crew, Rose gives Jeremy and Delena a lead. Uh, but when they chase it down, Cole has beaten them there and executed it. And then beats the shit out of Damon. So <laughs> um, Cole, who's had a chat with Klaus and has been brought up to speed on everything that's happening. In the Salvatore house, Stefan is forced to use violence to bring out Alaric's alter ego. Once that Alaric is out, because ultimately it is still Alaric. He reveals that he's kept the remaining white oak stake in the cave, the Lockwood Caves, where the vampires cannot enter. Klaus and quote-unquote Rebecca being in this house he overhear it. And Rebecca takes Rick to the caves to go and retrieve it while Klaus holds the fort. It's in the last scene of the episode where Rebecca is accompanying Rick to the cave. In there, he tries to strike a deal once he's retrieved the stake, um, saying that only one original has to die. So if she helps him, he'll make sure it's not her. Rebecca then crosses... Oh, I don't know if we've mentioned this, but this these caves that Mason Lockwood brought them to... They're spelled, I guess, so that vampires cannot enter. And so during the course of the season, whenever they have to go in there, a human has to go through to like read the walls. Elena uses the the border to sort of get away from Rebecca. Rebecca then just uses like gasoline and fire to evade that, which is really fun. But <laughs> there is a border wall of magic that prevents vampires from entering. Rebecca crosses the spell threshold standing Alaric, and she says, I don't want one dead. I want them all dead. And we find that this isn't actually Rebecca, but Esther, who has body jumped into Rebecca in order to fulfill her plan of killing the originals. Wild, to say the least. I remember being shocked the first time around. I was um, shook. <laughs> it's, 
understand. I, I remember trying to ration, rationalize it because <sighs> wouldn't Rebecca's body still be a vampire? Yes, yeah. yes, you are absolutely right. That is something I've wondered about for years because it seems like the writers are having their cake and eating it too. Because Esther, who is a witch and therefore mortal, when she possesses Rebecca's vampire body, she's able to cross a threshold that's supposed to block vampires. But in season two, Klaus, who at that point is a vampire, vampire hybrid, but at that point still vampire because um, of the werewolf side being suppressed. Klaus, who is a vampire, is put inside a Lorik's human body mortal body and is able to cross a threshold that is supposed to block vampires from entering so i'm like so what is it is it your soul or is it your body is it your body it needs to make sense it needs to that also links into the confusion about the other side and how that all works it's all like yeah kind of vague nonsense that we haven't really thought too much about <laughs> i guess the the only way that we could say it, it works is that oh with Esther possessing Rebecca's body and with Klaus being inside Alaric's body while Alaric's soul is still there, there's still the presence of a mortal soul. So maybe sure. if there is a mortal soul in the body, you can cross no matter what the body itself constitutes of. But I mean, it's still like, why am I doing yeah. the work for you? I mean, in this case, I'm more inclined because it's not like an egregious issue that like causes real world ramifications like in the case of klaus's ancestry with this one i'm willing to be like okay let me try and logic it out but the logic isn't logicking is the thing <laughs> it's it ends up being hand wavy logic which i hate i need it to make <laughs> sense do not go gentle episode 20 of the third season klaus and rebecca have a conversation he is unaware that it is actually esther possessing rebecca she's been a while from going to retrieve the stake with rick uh, she hands him the white oak stake and klaus throws it into the fire and they believe that's that he of course immediately tells her to pack because they're leaving town he says we're gonna grab the doppelganger and leave i love that in all of klaus's travel plans he always assumes that he'll have elena with him <laughs> it's just something he always says casually and never ends up getting to do but anyway. <laughs> in this scene it's meant to be esther playing rebecca and in this case it's a great, like, I'm always a fan of when an actor is playing a character playing another character. It's a great opportunity to see, like, very nuanced acting ability. But my thing is, she keeps it at that level, even when she's just with Rick, who knows that it's not Rebecca. Yes. Like, the way that Claire Holt plays Esther in Rebecca's body never feels like Esther to me. Outside of, like, the words that she's saying, which are words that Esther would say, the intonance and the mannerisms don't feel like the esther that we've seen so far which I, I like i don't mean to be negative about it but it pulls me out of it a little bit to be like i just feels like rebecca putting on a show it doesn't feel like esther coming through the stake that she's given klaus is a decoy <laughs> so just to be clear it is a fake white oak stake klaus saying to leave town is kind of a hitch because esther still needs time to enact this final plan of hers so she convinces that rebecca wants to go to this decade dance because rebecca again her whole thing is that she wants to live this high school experience she's planned this whole dance she wants to see it through and she plays the clara clara lime hate it she 
plays the Caroline card. <laughs> she brings up Caroline and the fact that she's attending the dance as sort of a selling point for Klaus to go. Um, and it works because... Yeah. Um, so, they're one last hurrah. They're going to go to the Decade Dance and then leave town. Damon calls up Alaric to check in. Rick convinces him that he's just going to go off and kind of take a, a little restful trip. Damon's like, you have a murderous alter ego. This is not the time to be doing that. And he's like, I've got the herbs from Barney. I'm taking them all the time. I should be fine. Maybe it'll be good for me to get away from all the vampire business to help me get better. Once they're off the phone, Esther slash Rebecca walks in and says she wants to jump back to her real body now to carry out the rest of their plan. She hands Rick the dagger that's dipped in the ashes so that he can stab Rebecca's body effectively something about the way the magic interacts once she's incapacitated then Esther's able to jump out and jump back into her own body at the cemetery where they are enacting this plan she tells him that this is the place where Klaus killed her way back when in 1000 AD and therefore is a good spot for her to like channel her magic this is interesting to me because I feel like there's, for as much as she says she does love her children, she does love her children. I think there's an ounce of like, yeah, now you'll see. <laughs> you kill me, I kill you. <laughs> so maybe she and Michael are a little more similar than I like to admit. She's also there because it's established um, in season two that when a witch dies violently, um, it marks the spot of their death with like a well of supernatural energy. Yes. She asks Rick for his Gilbert ring and is essentially going to bind the ring to the last remaining white oak stake because the white oak stake when you stab an original with it it goes with them it gets used up and burns up as the original dies they've seen this with finn they've seen this with michael so she's going to use the ring which is a ring that brings you back from supernatural death bind it to the stake to make the stake indestructible the the one plus one equals two there is so just chef's kiss yes truly it's like <laughs> just alchemy so, you and you never thought of it wonderful so rick gives her the ring and she does magic to bind it the ring like melts in a very satisfying way and creates a cool design on the stake and she hands it to him and says ah the ultimate weapon for you for a true vampire hunter damon has obviously clocked that rick is acting funny him and stefan and elena are kind of discussing what to do <laughs> damon suggests killing him which is a very Damon thing to do. Jeremy's pissed about this. Elena's pissed about this. Esther then shows up while they're having this sort of argument about what to do with Rick. Elena's alarmed. She tells Jeremy to go and get help, and he heads off. This is at the decade dance because they've decided we're just going to dance. Esther tells Elena that Rick is going to need our help, and whether she wants to or not, she will give it. <laughs> Willingly <laughs> or not. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, is that is that not Esther's thesis statement when it comes to the magic that she performs? Oh, absolutely. She's like, listen, this is a necessary deed. And I, while I feel a little bit bad about it, it's going to happen, whether you want it to or not. So Elena goes with her. Damon and Stefan rush outside to try and grab her. But they see that Esther's like surrounded the whole school with this line of salt and has put up a sort of entrapment spell to contain them at the school. I don't know how, I mean, I have to assume it's in the magic of it, but that salt is very stable. Yeah. Just outside, as large as a school, this barrier 
not a single gust of wind is gonna that's fine. <laughs> it must it must be the magic she takes elena to the cemetery and elena's like what have you done with rick rick shows up and he's like i'm okay i'm good granted it is uh, what do they call him evilaric, evilaric. At this point. i think kilaric is cooler it's kilaric um it's evilaric like like the fandom <laughs> <says>. <laughs> Well, good thing I don't care a whit about Stan, so I'll say what I want. <laughs> Esther explains that she's going to turn Alaric into an original vampire. Elena's like, a little bit hypocritical coming from you, my lady. Aren't you trying to get rid of the original vampires? And also, the man you're trying to turn into an original vampire is the biggest vampire hater. He's going to become awful as a vampire. And Esther says that it's not going to be the case. I've got big boy plans, and you've just got to let me do what I do. Elena says Esther doesn't know Rick. And this is when Esther says, actually, I know him better than you think. You see, every time he's died with that damn ring on and he's come back, I've been there on the other side. I've been guiding him back to his body. I've been nurturing that hatred, that repulsion he has towards vampires. I have been building him from the get-go preparing this as a fail safe this is my magnum opus and it once again true testament to the original mastermind also the fact that it's discussed in a number of episodes but like the reason that alaric was so became so warped was that it drew from his existing opinion and and feelings towards vampires who in a lot of ways kind of ruined his life his wife he thought was killed by a vampire then turned out to have left him to go be turned into a vampire jenna was killed by a vampire just vampires have really kind of run amok in this town that he now calls home so this alter ego kind of draws on all of those aspects klaus who's been at the dance with caroline tries to leave the school can't do it blocked by the salt line stefan tells him that is esther's doing in the classroom at school, Barney's trying to undo the spell. Stefan, Damon, Jeremy, Jamie, her stepbrother, who I refuse to talk about right now, <laughs> and Klaus are all surrounding her. Matt comes in and says that, hey, everyone else is just like leaving because they're like, we don't know what's happening and we kind of want to go home. Leaving without without messing up the salt line, I might add. So definitely supernatural. Yeah, and really just kind of stepping over. I do like that they are... They are, I suppose, one of those towns where they're like, we don't really believe in supernatural things, but we've been brought up with enough superstition to be like, I see a salt line. I'm not stepping on it. If there's any way to get around this, I will. I say that as someone who was brought up in a superstitious family and has a lot of idiosyncrasies, even though I see myself as a very rational person. They surmise that it's only vampires who are being kept in the school. So Jeremy's like, me and Matt can go sort things out. No problem. You guys stay here. Truly, these these are your fighters. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it really it does feel like that in that scene of like, damn, we're sending Jeremy and Matt. That's our only hope. Please, let's not joke, somebody. Is Jeremy even still wearing his ring at that point? Yes, he makes a point of it in the episode because it's Bonnie and him reuniting after however long when he left for Denver, and she says, "Did they not tell you about Rick's situation?" And Jeremy's like, "They did, but." For as long as my sister continues to hang around with vampires, I'm going to keep wearing the ring. Uh... Which is fair, because Damon has killed him, I think, twice at this point. 
So <laughs> I'm not going to judge Jeremy for his choices. Also, Jeremy's in his like hunter era at this point. He's killed at least one vampire and one hybrid, if I remember correctly. So season three, Jeremy is somewhat capable. Matt, you know, he's he's all right. He's a big guy. He can take care of him. He's, he's getting there. He's getting there. I wish he'd gotten there a lot sooner, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll see in a Matt episode. Hey, you need you need that token human in every supernatural supernatural <laughs> high school group of Halloween who monsters. Who has to stick it out? <laughs> Klaus, who feels Bonnie isn't working fast enough, grabs her stepbrother and tries to leverage her into doing it quicker. Stefan, who currently is in Bonnie's bad books because her and Dame and other reason her mother's a vampire now, he tells Klaus that. Bonnie already doesn't like us. She's only helping us because Caroline and Tyler are implicated. If you start killing people she cares about, then she's going to tell you all to go to hell. So Klaus relents, and Bonnie keeps doing the spell. Back at the cemetery, Esther's prepping her spell. Elena's trying to plead with Rick, saying that this isn't who you are. And Rick is like... I have done away with my weakest parts. I am the Ubermensch now, and my only purpose is to kill vampires. And Esther's like, well, now that that's sorted, Elena, your blood, please, as I always require from you. Elena's like, I'm not going to do that. Esther's like, I don't know if you've dealt with me ever before. I wasn't asking permission. <laughs> and she telekinetically pulls the blood from Elena's body. She gives the blood to Alaric to drink. And then stabs him with the white oak stake. This is in order to kill him and then bring him back as an original vampire. Bonnie still working her spell to find Esther, but realizes that Esther is blocking her. And I don't. It seems kind of Deus Ex Machina for her to figure it out. But oh no, I suppose now that you've reminded me that like this is a common thing. I think the way Esther was describing it is not the way they've described it in in the past in the show. But Bonnie figures out that she's channeling a hotspot. And Klaus realizes she must be where she was killed. He tells Bonnie to get Jeremy and Matt ready to head out. Back in the cemetery, cutting back and forth here. Elena pulls the white oak stake out of Alaric. And Esther tells her that when he comes back, he might be his old self. So she should say her goodbyes. Elena tells Esther that she's kind of being a hypocrite here. She's just as bad as what she's trying to stop. And Esther then informs her that Alaric will never be what her children are. Because he will die when the time is right. She tells Elena that she wants a world where people don't have to suffer from vampires. And she specifically name drops Jenna, which pisses off Elena for a bit. Mm. But then Esther tells her that Jenna does not know the suffering of the other side. She has found peace because she was pure even in her vampiric death. Whatever the hell that means, because now it's like, what does purity have to do with it? I thought if you were supernatural (laughs) and you had unfinished business, you came and you had to chill here. Like, Jenna died with two teenagers under her care who had, like, no (laughs) one else. (laughs) We can't belabor this point three episodes in a row. We're moving on. They hear a noise outside after this, and Esther goes to investigate, and she sees that Jeremy and Matt have showed up with weapons in hand, and they say, we want Elena. Esther's like, I don't know who you two even are. (laughs) She goes, Avatar the Last Airbender, Hama, and bloodbends the two of them to point their weapons at each other. It was such a cool parallel. It popped into my head the moment I saw this scene. And then Rick shows up just as they're about to shoot each other and stabs Esther in the back with a stake, killing her 
literally. She was genuinely shocked. Oh, I yeah. Loved it. And uh, just another <laughs> upset of like, oh, shit. And with her stabbed, she is unfortunately not any sort of supernatural that is resistant to physical harm. And so she dies. In the same spot that she died before. In the same spot <laughs> that she died a thousand years ago. I didn't even think about that. At least the same, like, hundred meters. Yeah. Oh, my word. Alaric, who stabbed her because he's back as his old self, not as Eve Alaric. After that, back at Klaus's mansion, he undaggers, Klaus undaggers Rebecca and goes over to Esther's dead body. And he gives this <laughs> angry monologue about how she'll never get to him. And it's giving a lot the lady doth protest too much, like someone who's won doesn't take all the effort and time to like gloat this much like clearly unless you're petty like me i i felt <laughs> klaus in that moment i was like you know what klaus have your victory lap <laughs> klaus was like i think he said something like my survival will haunt you through the ages i will never die <laughs> yeah that's 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 both such a good line and so emblematic of what's so frustrating about klaus this insistence of like i have to be the one on top it's it's like the driving force of the originals and it's why I'm just like, Klaus, you need to relax. You need to unclench. I mean, rubbing rubbing your survival in the face of somebody who's died twice in the same spot. <laughs> I mean, come on, that's got to be satisfying. This should be, again, the last time we see Esther, but we know in death she's always pulling the strings from beyond the grave. Barney, who is asleep at that moment, it is in her sleep that Esther shows up and says... You need to finish what I started. And she kind of wakes up and is like, maybe that was a dream. But then later onwards, we see her sort of walking almost trance-like towards the cemetery where Rick has decided not to complete his transition. He's going to um, let the natural process of transitionary vampirism waste him away until he dies. Barney walks towards the cemetery where Damon is watching over Rick's uh, wasting body so that to make sure that you know he does indeed die damon spots bonnie and is like what's going on girl and she goes aneurysm drop to your knees because you're nothing to me and walks past him she goes into the tomb she grabs the white oak stake and stabs herself in the hand and she places her hand on alaric's mouth thereby completing his transition and resurrecting him as an original vampire an enhanced original vampire Vampilaric, if you will. <laughs> Vampilaric. <laughs> oh, Vampilaric is in control. Um, and that's how the episode ends. I believe that's the last time we see Esther in the Vampire Diaries. That is the last we see of Mother Esther. Ma- she she is mother, but in the worst way possible. <laughs> Mothering, mother but derogatory. derogatory. <laughs> <laughs> we couldn't have ended on a better note. <laughs> Final thoughts, I suppose, on Esther. A truly an iconic character, like we're, like we're saying, mother indeed. Like, she has such a huge impact. She is the creator of vampirism. I'm just going to give some some quick quick things, because I oh, hate retcons do. that aren't explained. Yes. Uh, just real quick. Uh, I love that they chose to make Esther 
um, the witch of the original family because based on things they state in season two when the originals are still a new concept, it definitely seems like both of Klaus's parents were intended to be vampires. Oh yes, 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 yes. I see. Yes, I believe when when uh, Elijah, Elijah briefly touches, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yes, he briefly touches on his family history and he specifically tells Elena that uh, my family, we are the original vampires. From us, all vampires were created. And he tells her that, oh, at one point we were, you know, just an ordinary family of humans. And Elena says, oh, you were human? And he says, yes, we all were, my siblings and my parents. And then we became vampires. He never separates Esther from the rest of them during that conversation. So I I don't think she was intended to be a witch. Also, when in season two, whenever the curse on, on Klaus's hybrid side is spoken about, they always say the witches cursed Klaus. The witches were servants of nature and couldn't allow us. They, they never say our mother personally did it on her own. <laughs> I mean, however, <laughs> no one however, helped her. for as much as we know Ayana didn't help her, when they say the witches, they could be talking about Ayana and Esther. They are witches plural. <laughs> We're I'm truly the, hoping I'm at that point Ayana had stepped back. <laughs> <laughs> also, um, in that same episode, another contradiction that applies to both Michael and Esther, Elijah specifically says, My father was a wealthy landowner in a village in Eastern Europe that is directly contradicted by what they establish as canon as Michael and Esther both being from Norway. Michael being a Scandinavian Viking and Esther being like from the kingdom of Norway. So... That's another little retcon. I can I can only assume they were trying to they were trying to give a nod towards Slavic mythology, which is where a lot of Western vampire myths come from. Dracula and all those yeah, kinds of things. Yeah, you're doing a vampire story already. You've got the Petrova bloodline. We know she's been running from Klaus. It makes the, all the sense to root it in Eastern Europe. And then later on, it's like, well, actually, what if we do Viking? <laughs> like if if they knew the Viking thing, the link with America that you said that i now know is a real thing apparently they were like yeah we can link this back to virginia easy this makes a nice circular writing thing the viking thing is is interesting to me because one of the uh other popular vampire shows at the time true blood had a main character who i believe was also uh, a norse man who eric had been a viking. northman yes and yes an actual swede er- eric was almost the name that the writers picked for michael and then they changed it apparently because they felt oh we already have bill forbes and there's a Bill who's a main character in True Blood. We don't want an Eric as well. That's that. This is how the story goes, apparently. So then they change it from Eric to Michael. And I just find that interesting that, oh, you were so scared of having like this name association, but you chose to have Viking vampires be like your main vampire family, uh, even though True Blood already had like a very prominent Viking character. Right. And it's like Bill Forbes, super important character. <laughs> He's always very involved with the original drama. What? In the cave where the original family's names are etched in Elder Futhark, the runic Viking script, mm. if you freeze the scene, you can see Finn and Cole's and Esther's names there, I believe. And there's also the names Aaron and Eric. So I don't know whether Eric was just left over as a nod to how they almost named Michael Eric. Don't know where Aaron came from, but for years, fans speculated that Aaron was the name of Esther's first child. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, which, which turned out to not be true. Out, definitely <laughs> not the child's name. Yes. Eric, I... I'm happy to say it was a mistranslation on their part, and that was actually Henrik, 
because the vibes that Rick and Elena were giving as they were looking through stuff, it didn't seem like they knew what they were doing. <laughs> they were moving tags around. At some point, he takes the post-it note that says vampire and puts it on two different symbols. It's like he puts it on one, and then he looks at his book, and he's like, mm, nope, and then he moves it to the actual vampire symbol. You're it's absolutely like, right. In the in the scene where Esther links all of them at the party that the Michaelsons, quote-unquote, are throwing, if you if you read the the spelling of their names, there's a lot of mis- there's like there's a mistake that someone keeps making between L and I. Like the I in Niklaus looks exactly like the L in Niklaus, but then when you look down at Elijah's name, oh, the L has a different yeah. shape, and it's like hmm, someone could have just like googled this quickly to make sure it was right hey listen <laughs> i don't speak or re- i don't even know if it's a spoken language i don't read elder futhark i couldn't tell you if maybe it's the same symbol for both all i know is that the bluetooth symbol comes from there and that's about <laughs> it <laughs> in the originals universe that's also something the michaelsons invented oh yes they invented bluetooth <laughs> yeah. it was in fact an invention of um which one of them would have invented bluetooth it would have to be rebecca no rebecca's not like industrious like she that. was daggered she was also daggered at the time bluetooth was invented it would it would have to be elijah yeah, or Cloud. Right. two more quick things <laughs> um esther's coffin oh. <laughs> Just really, really quick. Esther says that the witch Ayana preserved her body with a spell. Yep. And then it was magically sealed in a coffin that couldn't be opened. Yes. Don't know how we get such a modern 21st century coffin that is supposedly sealed for a thousand years. Yep. I don't think those are the coffins that Vikings and Scandinavians would have used. Probably not. Also... Rebecca says that after Klaus had framed Michael for Esther's murder, that he stayed behind to help bury their mother. So I guess Ayana dug up Esther's corpse and then preserved her body. Yeah, and they then were put fully, her in this coffin. fully necromantic at the end of that. I, I, I think, um, and again, I'm not too knowledgeable. I, I did say a lot of stuff about the names earlier, but that's because that's one specific thing that I do know. Um, by Viking custom, I believe you're either like cremated or you're sent down in a boat down the river and then like they shoot arrows and then burn you viking funeral we all know about the viking funeral or you it's an air burial or if you are going to be entombed somehow it's like stone coffins i don't know if they used wooden coffins and i doubt it would have been that elaborate considering the state of where they lived it's also strange that Ayana, I don't know if you said it already, but the fact that Ayana's the one who preserves their mother and puts her in the coffin, and then the siblings are later put in coffins by Klaus, that all the coffins look the same. Like, <laughs> Esther's one just looks slightly bigger. Yeah, Esther's one was like bigger, like a different shade. Also, where, when does Klaus then get her body back if Ayana's the one who did it? I mean, came back and slaughtered whatever Bennets were there. You know they're dropping <laughs> Bennets by the dozens. What I love do. how you... You called them necromantic. I wonder, is, is Esther a necromancer or a blood mage? Or is she both? Oh, I think both. I think she's one of those, um, not eclectic. What is the word when you can do a number of different things? Bisexual. Multifaceted. She's oh. a multifaceted <laughs> um, practitioner. Okay. But uh, there is merit to, to witches who can do specific trades and then just like a little bit of other basic things, but are very good at like a specific thing. But alas, vampire diaries just need witches to fix whatever problem is present. Truly, that's why they call them the servants of nature. The one, The one final thing... In terms of retcons, uh, Esther's murder, which is described in detail in Vampire Diaries. First, Klaus frames Michael for it, but it's said that he tore her heart from her chest. Um, that's what Rebecca hears from Klaus. And then later on, we, know, we learn that oh, it was actually Klaus who did it. 
And when Esther goes to this uh, magical hotspot to turn Evalaric into Vampalaric, she says that, oh, here on this same spot a thousand years ago, my son tore my heart from my chest. Um, so she says that with her own words. And yet in the originals, she later on states that Klaus choked the life out of her and that's how he killed her. So I don't know. Maybe he strangled her to death and then ripped out her heart afterwards to frame Michael. <laughs> he was like, Michael wouldn't have just strangled her. He would have torn her heart out. But then also the ripping of the heart raises the question, did Diana then put the heart back and stitch her up? <laughs> also, why is there no scene? Maybe there I is mean, a we scene. Don't, I mean, we don't we didn't see her see... chest. We don't but know. But then that means she washed her clothes and stitched the clothes back. Because I don't think Klaus took the time to lift her smock and then reach through her chest. First of all, that would be weird as her son. <laughs> so I think he must have punched through the clothing to get to the heart. Ayana was like, shame. I'm going to... This was my student. I'm just going to fix her up real nice. <laughs> chest. What do you call it? The Is it, is it the mortician? Who's the one who prepares, like, the body for, like, a, a funeral? I think so. I think it's the mortician. So Ayana was just like, let me uh, let me just fix her up real good. Alice Evans, uh, the wonderful actress who portrays Esther, I don't think she's done much since. I know her initially from 102 Dalmatians. That's also where I know her from. Oh, nice. The live action is... one with Glenn yes. Close. Yes, yes, yes. The only one I've seen in true fashion to me. Side note, this this was the original live-action Disney remake. For those of y'all who thought it started in the 2010s with Maleficent, this was like 1997, I think? There was a 101 in America with, um, um, oh, what's his name from Dumb and Dumber? And what's her name from the Born Identity oh, movies? Oh, yeah, I, I, I know who you mean. I just cannot remember either of their names. It's Jeff Daniels, and I forget the lady's name. She's a great actress. And then they did 102 in England with Alice Evans and her then-to-be husband, Owen Grufford. Truly, I think that movie was a bisexual awakening for a lot of people. <laughs> Owen Grufford of Fantastic Four and Timeless fame. But yeah, that's it from us on the Esther episode. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed it or just want to otherwise share thoughts or questions, you can email us at animalattackpod at gmail.com or you can tweet us at animalattackpod. That's at A-N-I-M attack pod on Twitter. You will find a link tree in our bio that has everything that we do online. But other than that, it's goodbye from us. Cheers, everyone. See you.